Welcome to the Rolling Stone Studs, a podcast about the baddest boys of the British invasion, hosted by your own bad boys. It's Pete. And PJ. A Beach Boys Boys production. Yeah, it is. God. PJ, every day we're getting further away from the Beach Boys. And you know oh. what? Closer to the Rolling Stones. That's true. I think yeah. I have finally stopped... Uh, when I mean to say something about the Rolling Stones, said the Beach Boys. Yeah. I think I it's very have not close. done that in a while. It's very close. You know, yeah. Shelby asked me today, um, my my fiance, his fiance, my fiance, um, who my favorite member of the Rolling Stones was, and oh, I think it's a, a good, good question, question to ask at this point in the show. I thought about it for a long time and said. I don't know. I don't know if I have one. Really? Who would you say at this point? Like, I mean, as much as you can, just kind of based on the show so far. Obviously, Obviously, you'll probably have some opinions from outside of that, but. Right. Obviously, not Brian. Um, no, he's just you can't like a... beat that many women and be a no. favorite at anything. Exactly. Yeah, he's canceled. Um, You know, none of them are particularly great to women in general. Right. Um, it gets tough to say that, like, any of them as people seem... Like, Charlie? But I also feel Charlie. like it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. Charlie has serial killer eyes. Yeah, like, we kind of made a joke about it earlier in the show, but Charlie's one of those people where he he's just so innocuous, it would not surprise me if he's hiding some dark shit. Yeah. Because you, you can't be that kind of bland and like, oh, I'm just into jazz, man. And so, not, you know, yeah, be murdering people or something. Right. There, there is um, a story, and I don't know if it's happened in our timeline yet, yeah. but apparently um, all of the Stones and, like, some other people were, like, out partying. I think it was in the U.S. And they were, the like, Stones outside of... partying? This doesn't sound like them. I know. Peter, just bear with me. Um, And they uh, were, like, outside of a two-story hotel, and um, Charlie was inside sleeping, and then they started, like, throwing rocks at his windows and being like, hey, get down here. I need my drummer. And then Charlie Watts uh, puts on his, like, best suit and comes down and punches Mick in the face, and he says, I'm not your drummer. You're my singer, which is uh, pretty fucking cool. Nice. Yeah, so, that's so awesome. I'm gonna say Charlie because I think all around I just like yeah I kind of have a soft spot for Charlie. It just I mean almost by default it has to be Charlie. I feel like yeah. I mean Keith is the like classic answer, but I feel like Ooh, I don't know anything really? about Keith as a person. I would say Mick is the classic answer. Oh. I like Mick. He's he's got yeah. some boyish charm to him that I really yeah. appreciate. Yeah. So then. Well, she followed up with then asking me who my favorite Beach Boy was, and I didn't have to think at all to say Carl. Carl, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. And truly, the the, the least problematic member of the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah. Also that, I that the Beach Boys, for how much we uh, <laughs> wistfully idolize them in comparison to the Rolling Stones, are not without their problems. No. Um, as people. 
and yeah, he probably is. I mean, unless there's something we didn't talk about in the show that that did happen, you can write in and let us know. But I don't remember him having any controversy about him. No. Uh, he did try and dodge the draft that little bitch, but that's what right. the fuck. <laughs> um, but then she asked, "So who's the Carl of the Rolling Stones?" Then and I was like, "Oh, they don't have one." <laughs> yeah. They do not have a sweet, innocent boy who became a man by having to take over the band when someone went crazy in it. Like, yeah, that, I don't... that timeline does not like all many... the reasons I love Carl do not sync up with any of the Rolling Stones. Yeah, many bands do not have a Carl. <laughs> Carl's kind of in his own uh, yeah. situation. It's pretty unique, all in all. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Yeah. So I found that interesting, and also speaks to what's been on my mind a little bit lately i feel like with the rolling stones is that we're pretty far into their career relatively i don't think we're as far so with the beach boys at a certain point like there was a point in the beach boys where i felt like i actually like this sounds very lame but like felt like i was getting to know them as people just through the music eventually um like aside from just us going over their biographical details but like listening to albums i think it was around love you um and i i'm not even close to there with the rolling stones to be honest um well i think the beach boys um were trying to make pop hits in the 60s like that was their only function until you know they were like let's make a really nice album and they made pet sounds um but, like, up until that point, we didn't know them as musicians. They were just singing about, like, girls at the beach and surfing. Um, yeah. And so then they got into this artsy spell because one of them was an insane person where they were, like, you know, giving directions to their house on the album. And, uh, yeah. like, they became more into, like, the artsiness of it and, like, it was kind of no holds barred. Whereas the Rolling Stones they made a pop hit and then they were like, Oh man, that felt really good. And then they were like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be rock stars. We're going to make rock and roll hits. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like with the genre that the beach boys were, which is like kind of more psychedelic than the Rolling Stones, it lends itself better to like introspective lyrics than like rock and roll music does. That's a good point. I, um, the Beach Boys were definitely more, like another just another way of putting it, more intimate with their lyrics and like how they presented themselves yeah. than maybe the Rolling Stones will get there. But it seems like so far they still. It just kind of feels like even if they let you know some stuff about themselves in their songs, it's still a little bit at arm's distance. Um, they don't want you to get actually that close to knowing them. Yeah, which. Brings me to another point I was thinking about a lot this week, PJ. I've been thinking about the Rolling Stones a lot because it really bothered me after last week that I really hated Baker's Banquet. And then a little bit of a tease for later, I started out really not liking Let It Bleed. Um, So I was just, I was doing some soul searching. And another thing about the Rolling Stones is, did they invent all of the like rock and roll cliches of singing about whiskey and women and drugs and doing groupies in the back or 
was this stuff like vaguely kind of cliche when they were singing about it? Huh. Because like obviously that kind of stuff had been going on since, I mean, for forever. Any musician, I mean, any famous musician yeah. back into the, you know. Like, like the Beatles were doing probably. Speed at the Cavern Club. Well, yeah, and, like, people like, you know, Johnny Cash and Elvis in the 50s were having tours with, uh, like, Jerry Lee Lewis and doing an insane amount of drugs and probably, you know, doing groupies and stuff. You know, they weren't necessarily singing about it in the same way that, like, the Stones are writing songs about meeting up with a girl after the show. I think it was probably, and, like, I don't know, I wasn't alive then, but I think probably it was a cliché but nobody talked about it. It was kind of this like hush hush, like musicians are all drug addicts. But I think it probably started with like Jerry Lee Lewis and like that whole group, like you said. Yeah. I think well, like blues, obviously there were blues musicians who, you know, yeah. were super into heroin and all that. But right. um Yeah, I think with like what we know as like rock and roll, it probably started with that group, Chuck Berry. I don't know. I don't think Chuck Berry did drugs. I think famously I he know. did not. I know he loved pooping on tables, but yeah, I don't know if that has anything to do with drugs. I yeah, I think Chuck Berry was famously not into drugs. Yeah. Let's see. Apparently well, not famous. Uh, marijuana possession. Hmm. The worst drug of all. The gateway <sighs> drug. Fuck. And I respect the drug that gets him. you into all other drugs. Yeah. I wish he was. You know, PJ. It's ironic because now. I live in a place where it's just legal, man. Hell yeah. Me too, brother. Yeah. In London? Oh, yeah, in foggy old (laughs) London town. I have no idea if weed is. Weed legal UK. It seems like it would be, honestly, but eh, illegal. Oh, whoop. Man, I was was way off. I got to tell my friends. I'm I'm like kind of surprised about that. Like I know the UK, as we've been talking about on the show, is kind of stodgy, but... But it seems like something that they would have. They're not they're like a about. country that that does what the United States should do, and they treat addiction as like a health thing as opposed to like a crime. Yeah. So yeah. you you would think that marijuana would be legal in the UK. That is weird. Yeah. I mean, I knew all that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who does know, Pete? Well. So, yeah, I, so just some, you know, just some musings on the Rolling Stones, PJ. Yeah, we we yeah. we started early with the Stones talk this time. <laughs> it's crazy, man. It, it usually it's, it's like we're it's like we're doing a show about them. Which is really the craziest yeah, part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um um I I I wanted to ask you a question, Peter. Sure. What Shoot. Did- other than the Rolling Stones, what have you been listening to this week? Oh my God, this again? <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can keep this it is, more. This is not good. Uh, you know, PJ, I would have to say I think nothing. Oh. Yeah, a whole lot of nothing. I mean, I've been listening to like some non-Rolling Stones stuff, but mostly just a few old playlists that I've made, like not mm-hmm. any actual albums or anything. Okay. So... I have to say this week is I was very uh what would you what would you say involved I was, yeah I was really really determined to understand let it bleed yeah 
So. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Do you have anything you want to? I have just been listening to, to a lot of Gaither vocal band. Oh, I don't know. I don't know them. Oh, they're a Christian band. Uh, from nice. Led by Bill and Gloria Gaither, of course, famously. Sure. They would put out okay. VHS tapes in the uh, 80s through early 2000s. That sounds like a couple who would have like a line of home goods at TJ Maxx or something. Yeah. Uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just super Baptist, I think. Uh, nice. The best kind. Exactly. Uh, I've just been I dusted off those old VHS tapes, just been watching those all week. Nothing There's but, no better way yeah. to listen to music than by watching VHS tapes. Exactly. Everyone knows the that. sound yeah. quality. It's like you can mm-hmm. hear a pin drop. The quality of ev- of every part of it yeah. is fantastic. It's really good. Um, so, yeah, just been getting super into Gaither Vocal Band. I love the Mark Lowry years. Let me tell you that much. Oh, yeah? For sure. Yeah. He was a great guitarist? No, it's a singer. Vo- it's a vocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't just because it's a, they can have backing instruments. It just sounds like the emphasis is on the vocals. That's fair. It was like a quartet that had instruments. Uh, wow. But none of the instrumentalists were, they didn't matter, you know. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, Bill Gaither well, played fun. piano, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I've just thinking about been thinking about the Gaither vocal band a lot this week. That's great. Yeah. Um. You know, I actually kind of lied. I the only aside from as I mentioned a couple random like playlists I've been listening to, the only thing I listen to aside from the Rolling Stones is when I was in the depths of not liking Let It Bleed, I took a detour one morning on my walk to work and listened to Sunflower <laughs> by the Beach Boys. Wow. Uh only like the first 3 songs, but holy shit, those first 3 songs are perfect. They're good. Uh, I remember the rest of that album's pretty bad, but it really reminded me what great music was, and then I got back to work. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> it just goes to show that, like, no matter how great the Rolling Stones will be, it, they're just not... Just the Beach Boys, like, possess everything I need to like even the bad stuff in a band. Like, they're just all about... It's kind of like Paul McCartney solo stuff, where so much of it is objectively pretty meh but he's just all about he's just a slut for melody basically is all i it's the only way i can say yeah. it. him and the beach boys like they're just always chasing a catchy line yeah you know and that the, that classic phrase that the queen uttered when she was knighting him you're such a mm-hmm. slut for melody paul yeah exactly yeah and then linda was like what he's more like a slut for me yeah he's <laughs> <laughs> like a lady's name yeah that's funny and then she coughed because she was dying. Did he not get knighted till the nineties? I don't know when he got. That knighted. seems late. <laughs> no, I feel like it was the nineties when he got knighted. Really? Look it up. I wonder when the Rolling Stones. We. I don't think we ever talked about when the Beach Boys got knighted. <laughs> I was like, man, we talked about them getting into the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and oh, you might be right. Yeah, because Mick Jagger didn't get knighted until two thousand three. Yeah. So. And yeah, McCartney was ninety-seven. Damn, that's pretty wild. I did not realize all that stuff happened later. I thought that all those people got knighted in like the seventies or eighties. Oh no, my joke was so on point. Lyndon Montgomery died yeah. in nineteen ninety-eight. So oh no, 
it really was. I wish I didn't question it. And I yeah. wish I had just known and could have laughed my laughed my fucking ass off, PJ. Yeah. <laughs> it's somebody dying of cancer. Man. I mean, it was like 20 years ago, so it's hilarious. That's true. Now. It's it's come back around to where we can joke as, about it. As we will talk about later on this show, it's always funny when people die as long as there's like a few years. Yeah. You know? Yeah, or like maybe two or three days for some people. Yeah. Before it becomes funny. Let's see. Let's name a few. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Uh, the lead singer of Rush, Getty Lee. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Hmm. He's not Who dead. else died this year? <laughs> Getty Lee? I thought he did. Who died from Rush then? Neil oh, Peart. This is the, the drummer. Third, this is the third time we've talked about it on the podcast. This is the third time I've revealed that I only know one name of somebody from Rush. <laughs> And even though, like, I know who Neil Peart is, but I just can never apparently think of his name. That is very funny to me. Uh, who else has died this year? Um, hmm. Good question. Oh. Um, Not very many people, honestly. Yeah. Very few. I can't think of any. Yeah, no. I mean, unfortunately, just almost no famous people. Not unfortunately, but you know what I mean. Um, well, John Prine died last year. I guess, sure. or, or, and that's hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Christopher yeah. Plummer famously died. Sure. Yes, Christopher Plummer, vocalist in his own right. I think he hummed along to one of the Sound of Music songs. Yeah, it is funny <laughs> how much for the rest of his life he fucking hated the Sound of Music. Oh really? Oh, I know that. he did not like it. He was like, "It's kind of boring, isn't it?" And I was like, "Yeah, it is, Christopher Plummer. It's very boring." Yeah, it's got some good parts. Yeah, just but... edit. Just edit out all the, like, middle. It's just, yeah, way, way too long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, after whatever the song, when she, like, first shows up to babysit the kids or nanny them or whatever, right after that song, just cut until 16 going on 17. That's, like, 40 minutes of the movie, I'm pretty sure. That just does not need to be there. I would say that's more like an hour of the movie that doesn't Oh, really? Okay. I haven't seen it since I was a child, but I watched it a lot because I really liked it, and, uh... Have we talked about this on the show? This, the sound of music. I don't believe. Speaking so. of VHS tapes, this is all coming together. I swear we've talked about this on the Beach Boys Boys, but that's all right. We growing up, the copy of Sound of Music we had was taped off TV, on a VHS tape. So it was one of those. Yeah, it was one of those where you had to fast forward through the commercials, and for, for years and years, I thought the movie ended somewhere around the time when like the nazis showed up to their house like after 16 going on 17 (laughs) when like the nazis raided and then i think i i don't honestly really remember in that movie what happened then because then after that they go to the concert right the yeah and seeing edelweiss oh yeah it was like i yeah now i'm forgetting because i know that's part of the movie now but anyway basically our vhs tape cut off like the last 20 minutes of the movie so for years and years i did not realize that there was an ending to that like a different ending to that movie and uh there is so there you go yeah it's a it's a really beautiful ending where some nuns uh dismantle a nazi car they dismantle a nazi car and then they go hiking through the mountains he really uh stole the show during this quite literally from the children oh yeah Ah, uh, that Nazi's so mad. Yeah. 
Anyway. So that's that's our new segment. The sound of music is music to my ears. A weekly segment in which we yes. discuss our thoughts on the sound of music. They don't change. We should much. go our next podcast is going minute by minute through the yeah. sound of music. <laughs> we would have a podcast um, for twenty years. Yeah. Um pretty much every week of this show is the sound of music. That's get it? Yeah. Yeah. We should change the name of this podcast to The Sound of Music and our the cover sound. art will be us go uh, from hyper specific to just so general. Yeah. <laughs> the Sound of Music. We could just play clips of music to each other and Do then it. try and guess what it is for an hour every day. Yeah. I love that sound. Yeah. <laughs> what sound? What is this sound of music? Huh. Well, PJ, do you want to get into a little listener mail? Um, yes, I do. You know, we have not talked about it much in this song, but that tambourine at the beginning is so loud. Yeah. It's like the main instrument. It's kind of like in high school when I did, uh, I was the lead singer in a quartet who sang the song Lollipop for choir for a, uh-huh. like Valentine's Day thing. And <laughs> I was, I was like a sophomore in high school or something. And I was so excited that I was the like lead person. Cause I'd almost always not been in stuff up to that. And I like in our audition started singing the song starts with just the lead person and then everyone else comes in like after the first three lines and I started singing and afterwards someone was like you started singing so fucking loud it was like you were yelling it (laughs) (laughs) and we still we like got into the the show but (laughs) it was like it's like oh yeah I was I was just yelling that's ridiculous okay so our email this week is a reply from Joe, I think we've been saying his name, maybe JB, whatever. Well, we just won't say his last name. And uh, Joe responding from... Is this the his... Joe? <laughs> Who's Joe the Joe? How do you mean? Rogan? Oh, no. Unfortunately, podcast uh, god Joe Rogan has not yeah. uh, deigned us with his... We're not worthy enough contact to... Contact be... info. Yeah. yeah. We've been um, we've been emailing him every week, asking if mm-hmm. he could just, you know, just send us anything. Right, Joe. We have controversial thoughts on the Rolling Stones, and you promised to hear every opinion. God. Yeah, and well, one of us has controversial thoughts on the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Well, I think no. That's just to that's just to get on the show. Oh, though, okay. Because the whole thing is that like, holds up. A controversial holds up. person to get on there so that he gets those clicks. So it's, people will be like the Rolling Stone studs. Oh my god, yeah. those guys are crazy. Well, and Peter's and then been really, using we that. just end up talking about our workout routines the whole time. Yeah, Peter's been using the N word left and right to try to get on the <laughs> Joe Rogan podcast. Just in life, it's not yeah. working. I should record it, I guess, but yeah. just walking around my apartment saying it to myself <laughs> means nothing. Just yelling into the corners. Okay, so Joe followed up from his email. Uh, very kindly, which we appreciate, um, because just like always with Joe, he comes in kind of mean, and we get offended. Always. And then and then his follow-ups are very nice. He reels it back in. 
Yeah, it's just my only, just start with this next time, Joe. Start with the nice email. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to play this little game with us anymore. We're, we're basically email friends now. Exactly. Uh, so Joe says, hey, hey, guys. Two hey's for both of us. That's appreciated. Uh, thanks for the email. Your main takeaway from Dancing in the Streets is correct. It's one of the most cringeworthy, batshit, crazy videos of the 80s. Good to know. I'm excited to see it. It's great. He says, loving the show. Much appreciated. Of Just finished are. the one where you created your best albums for each uh, yearly 1960s year, which was a great episode. Every, you know what? Every episode's a great episode, yeah, except you... the live one. That one's kind of a piece of shit. But is it? <laughs> that episode was a great episode. The live one. Uh, I just remember I was really, really out of it that day. Yeah. So who knows if it's any good or not. But Here's a little peek behind the curtain. That is the episode I've edited the most of us talking out of. Yeah. Well, oh, I would assume it was mostly just us or me not talking for long stretches of time from what I remember. But whatever. That too. For, for my take on the Stones, I was excited to... Back to the email. For my take on the Stones, I was excited to see you guys were covering them as behind the Beatles, either the Stones or Kinks would be my second favorite band of all time. Wow. Crazy opinion there, Joe. Beatles' favorite band of all time. Great. Um, although, honestly, Kinks has a second favorite if you're going Beatles first. It's pretty wild. I respect that. I do respect that. Yeah. I do love the Kinks. I don't... I like like five songs off their greatest hits really i don't think i've heard a kink yeah. song and been like Ugh. i think i've heard oh yeah. they have a lot of really boring stuff i think but uh. um i we talked i didn't we did we talk about doing the kinks instead of the stones maybe not it occurred to me at least so. when we were talking about what bands to do but i think we we all we all knew it was, well, gonna, it was, be it was gonna be stones um the kinks would be an interesting other one though but did the kinks Oh yeah, bunch of white dudes from the '60s. Okay, they fit yeah. our criteria so far. Yeah, yeah. Did they wait? Did the Kings have a member that drowned? Because that also seems to be a criteria for our show. We could make it happen. Yeah. All right. They aren't all dead yet. Okay, we'll figure that one out. Um. Back to Joe's email. In my opinion, when Mick Taylor joins in '69, wow, prescient uh, email. We're gonna talk about that this week. They become the greatest rock lineup in history. And their five albums with him in the band is one of the greatest five album runs outside of the Beatles in the history of music. But that's not really a hot take. You'll find a lot of folks saying that. Joe, my man. Yeah, Joe knows what's up, according to you. As far as your show goes, it opened my eyes. Oh, this. Okay, now this is the best part of the email because he tells us how our show is good. As far as your show goes, it opened my eyes to Brian Jones's contributions during the mid-60s period with his exotic instrumentations, which, although I was aware of it, never hit me how big a part of their changing sound uh, he was until hearing you guys break it down year by year and track by track. So thanks for that. Again, love the show. Keep up the great work, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. We appreciate the listener mail. Um, oh, I responded and it says from PJ. <laughs> how embarrassing in the beach boys boys thing poor joe thinks that you're talking to him oh well that's good because i'm very nice over email and so he'll think that you're nice now. yeah you can keep up your brash um, uh dickish attitude on the podcast and nobody yeah, will think anything of exactly. it exactly um uh, well joe i'm glad that our show is helping you because that is our promise that we go album by album track by track and uh Really, it forces you to understand 
yeah. a band, I think. You can't you can't not understand the Rolling Stones. This is true. Um it it makes you also if somebody talks about uh my boss the other day was talking about the Rolling Stones and I was like, nice. Oh, I know a lot about the Rolling Stones and then I proceeded right. to talk at him for about five minutes about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, Oh, I'm doing that thing that people tell me not to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like on this show all the time when I'm like, PJ, shut up already. Exactly. <laughs> We're talking too much about the Rolling Stones. Um, I uh, I find I have the opposite problem where I'm just bad kind of at being on the spot like that. So if someone's like, oh, like, oh, so you really like the Beach Boys or whatever, then it's just like, yeah, I guess. And then like, I just don't feel like I don't really have anything to say. And then everyone's thinking, wow, that guy doesn't actually like the Beach Boys at all. See, my... My boss was talking about... Um, yeah, what was his dumb opinion, I assume? He was talking about how... Uh, he was like, you know what's weird? The Rolling Stones have that one song that's like really country And I was like, oh, my friend. They have a lot more than one song. Yeah, which one did he mean? Uh, Do you know? Well, Honky Tonk Angie? Women. I don't know. Okay. Oh, yeah. Honky yeah. Tonk Women. Nice. And uh, I was like, they have that one and also 12 million more. And then he Bro. was like, no, they're not that country of a band. And I was like, hey, fella. Yeah. They are. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Hmm. It's also interesting that people would be surprised by, like, somewhat basic Rolling Stones facts in 2021. Yeah. Um, But I guess I'm the poster child for that that's so far fair. in this show. Speaking of surprising facts and Joe's email, uh, he was saying sure. something about he didn't understand the contributions of, like, Brian Jones in the uh like mid 60s but yeah or um, just hadn't really fully i don't know appreciated them maybe right and so this week uh a bit of a switch up i was doing some research on rolling stone stuff wow and i read a lot of excerpts from uh bill wyman's book his memoir oh interesting yeah and he kept referring to brian jones as the leader of the band um yeah because he named the band, he uh, mm-hmm. formed the band, he would like mm-hmm. get the band booked at places early on, and because mm-hmm. uh, he was the one with connections in the music world in London, yeah, exactly. And apparently, part of what uh, I don't think we talked about this specific thing. We just talked about there being a rift between Brian and everybody else, but um, part of that rift was early on. He would pay himself five pounds more for every gig oh. than everybody else because he was like because i'm the leader yeah yeah um so yeah that's interesting that is interesting that kind of explains i feel like in both online reading and in the book i'm reading it's come up a couple times later in the 60s that brian gets annoyed that he that like mick was starting to get paid more or that like lug would get paid so much yeah i did not talk about this last week for some reason i don't know why i think when we were just talking about brian's kind of decline um but he had a quote that was in uh the book i'm reading that it was uh first they took my music then they took my band and now they've taken my love uh this is in 1967 i guess right after that one went with keith yeah um and sort of yeah gets it that where yeah he had started the band and everything and they were in like Mick and Keith. I would say like mainly Mick probably was kind of just 
and Luke when he was their manager, taking yep. taking control of it away from Brian yeah. for somewhat good reason because he I was think really unreliable reason. and unstable. Yeah. But um, I get how he had a bit of a victim complex about it because it's kind of a shitty situation. Yeah. Speaking of Luke, <clears throat> you have referred to him as Luke the entire mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. I've tried. You have, and his name is Andrew Oldham. Yeah. Andrew Luke Oldham. I have heard of Andrew Oldham before. And oh, really? you saying, yeah. And so you saying yeah. Luke, I was like, oh, this is a person I've never heard of. Yeah. It's also his middle name. So it's just very funny that we're referring to him as Luke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it came about because I couldn't really figure out because old, I think it's like Oldham. Tech. It just was an annoying name. Yeah. I like a single syllable Mick, Keith, Bill, Luke. Charlie. See? It's all I just call him drums. Yeah. Hey drums. Um well that has been listener mail. Uh what but please be inspired by Joe and write us in beachboysboys at gmail dot com. Write us about your thoughts on the stones, your thoughts on the Beach Boys, anything you want to share related to the show. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about, <clears throat> now that we're talking sure. about Lug, um, is, are you familiar with the, the band The Verve? I am. Okay. Well, are you familiar with the song Bittersweet Symphony? Who isn't, PJ? Perfect. So, did you know that the string portion of uh, Bittersweet Symphony Whoa. was taken from... A strings arrangement that uh, Lug had done on an album called the or by the Andrew Oldham Orchestra, um, and it was a string arrangement of the song "The Last Time" by the Rolling Stones. What the hell? And, no. And it was That's slowed nuts. down slightly, and then they were sued because they had just straight up taken it with no. Um, like they didn't say that they had sampled That's it. That's crazy. Do you happen to have a version of the Andrew Oldham? I do. String orchestra last time, the last time. I'm trying to think of that behind the melody for the last time, and it doesn't sound that right, but. Right. Okay. Here we go. Interesting. One second, and I'll get into it. He really ascended to new heights after leaving the Stones. I mean, this is really slowed down compared to the last time, right? Yeah, I so think that's it, what's throwing me off so much. He he wow. he he put out, I think maybe two or three of these where it was, um, yeah, it, it was orchestral versions of Rolling Stone songs, and people loved yeah. them, I guess. Well, but, I mean, Herb Alpert made a career off it, so yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but yes, this is the last. That's crazy. Time. That's really nuts, huh? Yeah, and I I had forgot I knew that that was a thing, and I had forgotten what song it was, and yeah. 
And then when I you had no idea uh, the connection to the to the stones. Well, no, I, I didn't realize that it was the last time. I was like, I'll bring that up when the song is recorded, like whatever song mm. it is. And then it was the last time, and I was like, oh fuck, we've already we talked about that song in like the third episode. Yeah. Um, but it reminded me when I uh remembered that Luke's name was Andrew Oldham. Uh, I was like, oh fuck, yeah, we have oh the not Andrew Oldham of Verve fame. Yeah, yes, that guy. yes, <laughs> of the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Yeah, 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 but. I, that's just an interesting little tidbit that we didn't talk about when we that is an when we talked about tidbit. the song. Yeah, I love it. PJ, I think it might be time for an age check on all these Ooh. on all these bad boys from the British Invasion. You know, we did this a lot on the Beach Boys. Boys, we have yet yeah. to do it on the Rolling Stone Studs. I think we did it one time in like early, early, like one of the first few episodes we did. Yeah, just to figure out how old they were when they all kind of started out but mm-hmm. based on a picture i'm guessing they're all in their early 50s <laughs> no pj a picture from 1969 you're looking at the wrong one man no no this one's from 1969 <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah fair okay um okay so mick start out with the lead singer the mouth himself 26 years old wow yeah honestly younger i mean i know they were pretty young when they started and i guess it's only been five years since they started but i was thinking they were all going to be a little older than this but i did and it's weird to think of like because i am 26 and it's weird to think like they have lived this whole life and i have a podcast about the rolling stones (laughs) yeah fair um i guess they are older they're about the age i believe about the age of like the Beatles and most of the Beach Boys in the late '60s, so yeah, um, yeah, that's the weirdest thing is like thinking about how old the Beatles were when they broke up, is like mm-hmm. it really fucks with me sometimes. Yeah. Oh, they the Beatles were a little older, but yeah, well, yeah. they were like John Lennon was thirty when they like broke a year up. or two older. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So Keith also twenty six, same age. Okay. Brian, a little bit older. 27. Oh, okay. Charlie, a little bit older, 28. And Bill, <laughs> hanging there at 33. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What a weirdo. I forgot. I forgot whether he or Charlie was the weird old one, and it's it's him. And then Ian Stewart, I think, was older, too, but not a member. Not a member. Fuck Never you, will be. Stewie. Yeah. Go get bent. Yeah. So, yeah. Pretty interesting. Pretty, I mean, it is just nuts how young they are um yeah especially because it feels like i just want to say based on their appearance it is insane that charlie is 27 years old yeah 28 but yeah oh sorry 28 yeah yeah i mean they definitely look older um they've also like i guess maybe not by 69 i mean they've been doing a lot of like drugs and stuff but they haven't been touring as constantly as they were earlier in the decade but Right. They've been putting a lot of, you know, they've been putting a lot of hard use into those faces. Yeah. I, so. I pulled up a picture of them in 1969. Yeah. Um, and also, Brian, we talked about this last week, looks like shit. Looks like yeah. he's in his 40s, genuinely. Yeah. Um, but Mick Jagger is, uh, like, 
when he's in his 20s, looks uncannily, like, him and Harry Styles look uncannily alike. That's interesting, yeah. I I would watch a biopic of uh, (laughs) Mick Jagger featuring Harry Styles. You know, honestly, wait, no, which one's, mm, I'm getting a lot of pictures with Mick, but I don't know which one Mick is, because I'm an idiot. He's the one who's not Bill Wyman. Oh, okay, here we go. Yeah, Bill like does not look like the oldest member. No, to me. in no way does he. Yeah, he's just because like there. Mick. At least the specific picture I found, everyone just looks like they've been awake for forty eight hours, except Bill. So maybe yeah. that's the the thing. Like they all and, have deep bags and just look like shit. And Charlie just always kind of looked like that. Yeah, I think he just had perma bags. I don't know. Charlie, well, and Brian for sure. But so it, we'll 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 talk about this more next episode. But I just want to say off the record, sure. Mick Taylor. Oh he yeah, can, he can. Get I mean, it. he's barely legal, so that's the kind of that's what I want. That's kind of boy pussy I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, I was for a minute. I just forgot what Bill looked like, and so I found a picture with Mick Taylor, and I'm like, "Holy shit, Bill looks young!" And then was yeah. like, "Oh wait, nope, that's not. <laughs> that's 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 the wrong one." So PJ, this episode is a sad. Well, it's an. I don't. I don't even know if I can say it's sad. I suppose it's sad. <laughs> Some people have the worldview that no matter who the person was them dying is a, like anybody dying is a sad thing i don't know if i quite agree with that we we talked about a, uh one person in particular earlier who y- yeah you know, sometimes it's fine that they there's died. a greater good aspect to someone being off this earth yeah. but um i i don't know if we can necessarily say that with brian jones um but this is the episode we're gonna get to the death of brian jones pj ooh spoiler alert yeah. You wanna, I was going to play a sound effect. You want to get into it? One. I do want to get into All it. Right. So most of this that I'm going over, like most of this info is based on the book I'm reading. Um, oh, okay. Which goes into I, great detail I about went this on period. A, okay, I went on a deep dive nice. into his actual, the events surrounding Good. his death. Okay, that's kind of so. the one part where I would say this book, it doesn't skip over it, but he kind of just shoots across that because I, I just, as... As far as the point of this book, I don't think he was looking to get that deep into all the, you know, right. conspiracy theories. So I'm, I'm glad we'll have some more detail around that specific part. But so back in 1968, we're gonna jump back a tad. Brian okay. bought his country estate to join the rest of the boys out in the pasture. Um, yeah, and he bought Cotchford Farm. Which yes. was originally uh, A. A. Milne's house, who is the author right. of the Pooh stories, Pooh Bear. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Yes. Um, the estate was decorated with many Christopher Robin statues yes. and uh, placards. Yeah. And the Hundred Acre Woods that is talked about in the book mm-hmm. is behind that yeah. uh, cottage. So, and apparently Brian, unclear whether he was a fan of this before he bought the estate or after buying the estate, but he became really enamored with the Winnie the Pooh stories and the idea of living here. 
and like at one point was saying he wanted to be like buried next to a Christopher Robin statue on the property or something and like was just very very into this kind of child return to childlike uh feelings mm-hmm. which sort of makes sense since he's having a really a really rough time in adulthood that he would look for some comfort there right um uh in june 69 the band minus bill uh drove out to cotchford to fire brian um so this is after as we were talking about during all the beggars banquet sessions he was barely showing up to record when he was he wasn't on the same page as the band partially their fault partially his yeah um and just wasn't contributing in a way that they felt was helpful to the band anymore and then also he was having those like visa troubles we talked about. So he wasn't, I guess, on a lot of tour dates outside of England or hardly any. And so they needed someone more consistent. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. in um, Bill Wyman's book, he talks mm-hmm. about that being mostly the reason is that, that he, he couldn't, couldn't tour, tour with them. Yeah. Um, at least according to him, but he also yeah. in his book is very bitter about, seemingly bitter about them throwing him out so interesting yeah um so they told brian they would pay him a hundred thousand pounds and then uh plus twenty thousand pounds every year uh, as long as the stones existed which would be up until 2021 Mm -hmm. (laughs) brian was still alive um according to keith brian took it pretty well and like very just quiet like he was kind of expecting it to happen which makes some sense it had been like over a year that he'd been you know having all this trouble um and then longer than that that he knew that they did not like him so yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so interestingly uh cohen the author of the book i'm reading kind of mentions brian he kind of goes on this weird aside mentioning brian as like the longest or just the or sorry the the current person in a line before and after this of people who are kind of eaten up and thrown away by the stones throughout their career um the first two being ian stewart um Mm -hmm. and then lug later in the 60s uh and then more people later marianne faithful is an example uh we'll talk about a little later she and mick break up late in 1969 um and he blames mick for being kind of ruthless and having just a really business-like approach to the band once he becomes like the lead member and so them just yeah having this attitude of using people as they need them and ending it when they don't we've all been there um so the band released a statement that he was out brian released his own statement saying that he quit oh so i have uh please i have a different uh from what i had understood um they went over to his house told him he was out and then they said you can release the information any way you want oh okay and so then the next day brian released uh, a statement in the newspaper saying like yeah, just artistic differences, and right. he never said he was kicked out in the statement. Yeah, and then I think later on the Stones were like, "Yeah, yeah we kicked him out." Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I have a quote from Brian saying that I no longer see eye to eye with the others over the discs we're cutting. 
that that's the yeah, very sixties out of the statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, you're right. I yeah, because then it's later, like when then reporters called the other stones after that statement came out is when they said, I don't know if they said that they fired him or not, but said, yes, Brian's leaving the band. I think they said it was mutual at the time. Okay. And then announced that Mick Taylor would be joining immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so my question to you is, had they found Mick Taylor before they kicked uh, Brian out? According to what I've read, yes. Cause it was basically the day after Mick was like, showing up to the studio or whatever their next tour stop was to start playing with them. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. uh, Apparently Keith kind of found Mick. Uh, Supposedly he like walked into the bathroom of a studio they were recording at and Mick was noodling around on his guitar and Keith went, Holy shit, man, he's pretty good. And they Mm. kind of recruited him. Um, So, and then, but then another thing I read said that they called around to some people asking about a guitarist and found him through John Mile, who Mick Taylor was in John Mile and the Blues Breakers. Right. And he was recommended through them. So it's a little, hmm. who knows the exact story, yeah. as a lot of Stone's things go. Yeah. Um. So Mick joins them. Um, he was going to be paid just as a contract player to tour and to record in studio. Um, He was only 20 years old in 1969. Uh, One kind of interesting thing Cohen points out is that Taylor apparently was really unimpressed with how sloppy the stones were when he (laughs) first started playing with them. Like they were playing like out of tune instruments, just like totally out of sync when they would like first start rehearsing, Um, which also according to this book, parts of it are he joins them for their rehearsals for their 1994 tour, I think. And he Mm -hmm. says the same thing. Like, even though they've been doing it for 50 years, he said like the first hour of the rehearsal is them sounding like a shitty, like high school band. Yeah. Trying to play the blues. (laughs) And then like all of a sudden they kind of get together and it kicks in and it's the Rolling Stones. So, okay. Um, which I think he was trying to highlight with the Mick Taylor thing, just that apparently in the blues breakers, they were very like, kind of regimented it was almost like a weird like finishing school for being a guitar player maybe a little bit like alexis corner's band was back in the day that brian was in but like they were just you know they were supposed to show up at this time they were supposed to have these like licks down perfectly all this stuff right and so he shows up and the stones are just you know laying around getting high not worrying about anything for the first hour that they're supposed to be working so right okay anyway so back to brian (laughs) So mix mix here now in the picture officially, but so Brian, after he's fired, does a little bit of traveling. He goes back to Morocco for a bit to hang out. He uh, supposedly records some music by himself, although yeah. none of the demos I don't think have ever come to light. They have they not. Exist. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a key part in what I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Okay. Um. Apparently, at the moment or at the time he was obsessed with CCR's Bayou Country. Oh, fuck Um, yeah, dude. That's awesome. Which is a great album and also is kind of ironic that, like, separately, he was not even in the Let It Bleed sessions, mostly. And the Stones were also, like, getting into country, and then he was just hanging out by himself, getting fired, being like, country rock is really good. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, if he... I mean, it's, like, clearly they were too far gone to kind of keep it going, but it's like they were in the same place musically 
he right before Baker's banquet, he was begging Mick to go back to the blues. Like, right. He, it, it was not, it really, it wasn't artistic differences. It was all personality and his mental instability. Yeah. Um, clearly. Um, and he died July 3rd, 1969, uh, by drowning in his pool. His, his body was found July 3rd, 1969. Oh, it was found, was it the night of July 2nd when he died? Would you like me to go into it? Please. I have a okay. kind of a short version of the story, but okay. you take it. You take it from here. Um, so, July 2nd, 1969, um, Brian Jones is hanging out at his house mm-hmm. with his girlfriend at the time, whose name is Anna... I believe Volin is how it's pronounced. Okay. Um, and he is having other guests over. One of them has lived there for three months. His name is uh, Frank Thorogood. Mm-hmm. Frank Thorogood was his builder who, um, after he bought Cotchford Farms, uh, he uh, wanted to get it, like, redone. Like, uh, what's that called? Renovated. Renovated. He was he was paying Frank Thorogood to renovate it, and Frank Thorogood said, "With all the builders I have, it'll take two weeks." Uh, Frank Thorogood then moved into the guest house <laughs> above the garage, and was there for one three does. months. Yeah, nice. was there uh, for three months, and yeah, so he was just around a lot. Yeah. Um. So the night of his death, there were uh, Frank Thorogood was there. Uh. This Anna Volin woman was there, and uh, Frank's girlfriend, who was a nurse, was there. Oh, damn. Okay. Yes. Um, so, as it goes, based on Anna's account of this story, um, Frank comes over. Uh, him and Brian get in an argument uh, because Brian was just recently fired from the Stones, so he cut off all payments to... Yeah. Um, Every, every like every external thing including the builders yeah. and um so frank thurgood comes over and he's like brian what the fuck dude and he's just like um yeah you guys aren't really getting the job done and also uh i don't have any money i just got fired from the stones and he's like but soon i'm gonna get like a hundred thousand dollar thing and then frank thurgood was like you owe me eight thousand dollars and then he was like okay i'll pay you the eight thousand dollars when the builders stop, when they take all their stuff, I'll like I'll finish paying you guys your money. Yeah. And according to Anna, that seemed to have calmed him down. And then they were like, "Let's go for a swim in the pool." And Great. so, and that and that's when Anna goes inside. Um, as they were, and this was pointed out a lot. Brian was apparently on the swim team in high school and was a very strong swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes inside has a normal night goes to bed eventually um and then the nurse that frank is uh dating finds uh brian jones's dead body in the morning okay um then i i believe it was kind of like it there were a lot of different accounts of who actually found his body but the one i found the most was this nurse woman yeah the the version in the book very differs slightly just i think it i guess i'm a little unclear but i think cohen says that she found him that night okay like it's late it's like late at night but 
Yeah. Know? Well, I think like early in the morning, late at night, like one or two in the morning. Got it. Yeah. So okay. I th- cool. I th- I believe his body is found July third, nineteen sixty nine. Okay. Yeah. Um. So she finds his body, calls the police. Mm-hmm. The police come. They do uh, a post mortem autopsy kind of situation. Um, they find that there are drugs and alcohol in his system. Yeah. So they claim it was death by misadventure, which is a hilarious term to me. Yeah. Um. They think he was That's just too crazy. drunk. Right. And he was, you know, in a swimming pool. Like and accidental he just died. drowning. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. However, everybody apparently has a problem with that because they're like, he's a strong swimmer. Yeah. And then, so um, a detective looked at the case in 1994, mm-hmm. and they found out that there were only trace amounts of drugs in his system, um, and it was mostly in his urinal tract, which means it was no longer in his body. Mm. So he had not yeah. taken drugs that day, supposedly. And with how much of an alcoholic he was, um, the amount of alcohol in his blood apparently wouldn't have affected his swimming ability. Yeah, um, interesting. So then the theory, the the biggest, there are many conspiracy yeah. theories about his death. The most prevalent one is um, that Frank Thorogood was just yeah. so mad about the money, and he right. lured him into the pool to drown him to death. Yeah. And then people say, like, well, he doesn't have any, uh, like, he didn't have any, like, bruises on his shoulders or anything, like, from him dunking him in. But apparently the police also did a fairly shoddy job of, mm. like, yeah. getting evidence and, like, uh, doing an autopsy and stuff. Interesting. So yeah. that is the first one, that Frank Thurgood killed him, went up to his room above the garage, told his nurse girlfriend, um, I think Brian just drowned to death out there. She yeah. goes out. Finds the body, calls the police. Yeah. That is one uh, <laughs> theory. Another theory. Yeah. Would you Would you like to? Well, I just had a quick to add to that theory. I found uh, something that in 2008, some journalist had interviewed that girlfriend again. And like a bunch of stuff she said had the police reopen the case for a second. Yeah, in um, 2009, they... Oh, 2009? Okay. Yeah. Um, And she just had some quote about, like, the contractor guy, like, came back inside, and his hands were shaking, and he was, like, in a terrible condition. And I went out to the pool, yeah. and Brian was dead, so... Exactly. Um, So, that's the most prevalent theory. Yeah. There are so many other batshit crazy theories. Um, yeah. Another one is... There was a driver that mm-hmm. the Stones had hired for Brian to kind of look after him and to drive him around and stuff. Um, and he is a former military man, which is comes up later. Yeah. Um, the thought, the uh, another theory is that Frank Thorogood, the contractor, killed him, and then Tom Keelatch, who is this driver, who yeah. looks suspiciously like Michael Caine. Um, <laughs> So look many British picture. guys look suspiciously like Michael Caine. That is a fair point. Um, but so uh, Tom Kielech comes while uh, Frank Thurgood is murdering Brian, does nothing, covers up the murder. Yeah. The thought the thought behind this is that um, Tom Kielech was then there in the morning. And is it Tom Keylock? I just Googled it, and that's that's what came up. Okay. Oh my God, he does. If Michael Caine had really long hair, that's nuts. Yeah, right. Like exactly like him. Yeah. 
Okay, keep going. Sorry. Oh, it is key lock. What a dumb name. It's like a key and a lock. That's fucking stupid. That's an I insane wrote name. That's the kind of name that if you time. used it like as a stage name, someone would be like, that's too stupid to use. Exactly. Anyway, so Tom Keylock. Oh, you know what? I have it written down like four times here. God, Half the time it's Keylock. Like oh, he looked bad. But he, um, people in the Brian Jones fan club, apparently the leader of the Brian Jones fan club would drive by Brian Jones's estate on his yeah. way to work every morning. And he says that he saw uh, Keylock burning documents the morning after the body was found. Jesus, yeah. Like early in the morning in his yard. Uh, So that is another theory that um, Frank Thurgood and this Tom Keylock guy covered up the murder together, um, were in on it together. I don't know in that one what Tom Keylock gets out of it. I think it's just he, since he was like kind of, Brian Jones' keeper. He didn't want to look like he was a fucking idiot. But then later in life, so apparently Keylock and Thurgood were good friends, which is bizarre to me. Um, Right. But then later in 1994, Thurgood dies, and Keylock is there like when he's on his deathbed. And he claims in 1994 that he admits to the murder. Yeah, that that Frank I saw Thurgood, that somewhere too. Yeah. yeah, on his deathbed, maybe it was 1993. I don't know. In the 90s, so, somewhere around there. Yeah, um, he he admits like I was the one who done Brian. Uh, that's an exact quote uh, from <laughs> Tom Keylock. Uh, yeah, and so they were like lifelong friends after that, and then he throws him under the bus. Um, this. Another thing that Tom Keylock said is that his brother, who was on in the police department, I believe Scotland Yard, um, a Bobby, he, a Bobby, yeah, uh, he, um, he said that his brother told him that the shoddy police work and stuff was done on purpose because they wanted to, you know, cover up uh, anything to do with Brian Jones's death, right? Um, which is suspicious of Tom Keylock that he outed his friend and was like oh he said he did it and my brother also said that that um it was it was a conspiracy like yeah. uh so that guy is suspicious as hell but um there is a stones historian stones and beatles historian who i lived next door to oh, as yeah. a child i've talked about him jeffrey giuliano has a different theory this that guy. tom keylock um <laughs> This is my favorite one because apparently it took him years to come up with this theory and he investigated it really deeply. Yeah. And he's like the the lead Rolling Stones conspiracy theorist. Nice. Um, this is a that, guy who we need to have on this show. <laughs> I, I guarantee we could get him on the show. Damn. I bet I could it's get tempting. him. Um, but Keylock oh, – sorry. Giuliano says that Keylock um, orchestrated many people – Coming into the pool and drowning him, so that so that there were no bruises. So they only each had to put a little bit of okay. force. And he stood yeah. outside the pool huh. as there was like ten people in the pool drowning. Right, like uh, a weird cult ritual, <laughs> yeah. pushing him down. That actually comes into play a little bit later. Okay, um, great. So, so that is his theory, and he is willing to die on this hill. Um, of course. And so his theory is either. Because 
of a satanic ritual that there are references mm-hmm. to on their satanic majesty's request. Um, okay. There, there's apparently a was lot of things. Was Keith the one who was into Satanism? I mean, Brian probably was too. They probably all were to some degree, I guess. Exactly. Okay. That's why <laughs> Keith and Mick paid Keylock oh, wow. to murder him. One theory, Damn. the more normal theory, is that uh, they didn't want to have to pay him the hundred grand or the the extra money every year the stones were a thing. Right. Uh, they were like, "That's I mean, too much money. Yeah. We'll get we'll get Tom to kill him." Yeah. Um. Huh. Uh. So that is one of the theories. Interesting. As to why the Rolling Stones themselves killed him. <laughs> um. Another theory is that Brian Jones had invented the name the Rolling Stones and owned the rights to it, and they wanted it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, that is not true. Jones had signed right. them away a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. So um, <laughs> th- there's one that Keith Richards earlier in the day had threatened Brian Jones with a knife, and he ordered Keylock to go finish the argument. Nice. Which um, apparently all accounts say that Keith Richards was nowhere near yeah. that part of the country that day at all. Yeah. They were, like, recording in a studio, and it's, like, well-documented. Yeah. Um, Hmm. There's another one that Brian Jones had recorded a masterpiece so phenomenal. (laughs) The tapes tapes that we were talking about. Oh, these YouTube commenters are coming up with this one. (laughs) That the Stones felt threatened by it. and um, Jesus. Yeah. And they decided to murder him. Yeah. Um, The satanic stuff is... (laughs) is really weird because apparently on their satanic majesty's request there's a lot of like imagery that points out that brian jones is like they're gonna kill brian jones um okay but uh one of them is that um the cover of the album through the past darkly big hits volume two which is a greatest hits thing was the was from the last um photo shoot that brian had done with them and uh apparently brian's image is completely shattered in the back cover where the mirror cracks he is also the right bottom of the five pointed star configuration okay is that the death point or something i guess so (laughs) it didn't go into more detail i mean i assume at least the mirror crack thing is the same sense of humor that had them put his flower as a withered stem on flowers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, they just didn't like him. Like, yeah. They just um, looked for reasons to make him look like an idiot. But then the last one was yeah. that he was killed um, by... Uh, n- it didn't say by who in this theory, but it was paid... Somebody was paid by the royal family to drown him to death because he was having a secret affair with Princess Margaret. Hell Yes. Who apparently yes. had been visiting Cotchford Farm. Hell yeah. Yeah. Dude, if you've seen The Crown, you know Princess Margaret down to fuck, so. Yeah. She would totally um, be into Brian Jones. Yeah, dude. It. It's. There's so many. Yeah. But also, Brian yeah. could just fucking drown in his pool, you know, like. Right. Yeah. Where do you, what do you think happened? I mean, despite my interest in conspiracy theories, I would say yeah. that generally my inclination is just to take the like simplest kind of answer 
at, yeah. you know, or so probably that he just drowned. Um, yeah. But My... it is also weird because like the account that I read in the book, it's like for him to have just drowned, it sounds like there was basically only about a 20 minute period where no one was with him, which yeah. I, I mean is long enough, but it's still like just seems fast and like especially if like thoroughgood was out there and he was swimming along fine and Mm -hmm. then 20 minutes later he's not fine the really the only thing and i actually don't even know if this has come up in this show so far but um in the book someone like mentions that he might have had an epileptic seizure, but I was like, does Brian Jones, did oh. he have epilepsy? Like, I don't remember that ever coming up that he had seizures. See, this is something I don't know. This is something I didn't read yeah. about my uh, research. Because, like, um, he did have asthma, and so that kind of was mentioned in the book, but as someone who has asthma, I guess mine isn't that bad, but I find it hard to believe he couldn't have, like, reached the edge of the pool and climbed out even in an asthma yeah like there's a picture of the you're pool. not it's that... not a very big pool it's yeah, not like, like olympic size or anything maybe his asthma was really fucking terrible but it's like i don't know it's it just yeah. feels kind of unlikely but yeah a seizure seems more likely that he would have just been yeah i don't know if he had epilepsy i'm sure that's exactly what it was i didn't read anything about that though yeah that was just a weird aside in my book and then no one went into it or like there was no more detail and i tried googling a little bit and there wasn't a whole lot right and so so, uh, i am not somebody who like easily believes conspiracy theories i think they're dumb for the most part there's just so much with this thoroughgood guy that i'm like what the like he came in mad at him and was swimming with him and then he like is magically dead i mean it's kind of similar to denny's where it's like it's just not like there's enough questions that it leaves the door open because like denny was an amazing swimmer his entire life and so like the idea that he would drown is like kind of batshit yeah and like you know i don't know so there's like some there's just enough things that don't quite make the easy answer feel correct that yeah yeah where i am inclined to believe that brian jones was just fucking died in his pool but yeah i think there should be this is George, yeah, Thur- not George Thorogood, the Thorogood man. Yeah, uh, no, it's George Thorogood. He went yeah. on to start a band. If he is them. bad to the bone. Oh yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, um. So that those are all the conspiracy theories I could find yeah. about Brian Jones's death. It's pretty nuts, man. Yeah. I had um learned originally of because my thought was always that um he had just died in a pool. Yeah. Um, it was brought to my attention that there were conspiracy theories when I was in college taking a class called History of Rock and Roll, and the teacher alluded class. to them, uh, to the Rolling Stones having murdered them. Yeah. Which that's is funny. like the one I don't think the craziest is true at one. All. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, so. um, yeah. So for the Stones, I only really found like opinions from two of them. Yeah. Uh, there's probably something from Bill's book, I guess, but I, from what I found, Keith said later, he just, he found the situation really confusing, I think was his words. It mm-hmm. was just a confusing situation. And 
to his mind, quote, there was no one there that would want to murder him. Someone didn't take care of him. So accidental, I guess, is where he's landing. Yeah. Um, and then Charlie Watts said he felt it was like a half on purpose, half accidental, where he said it seemed like Brian was really just putting him in himself in a position where, you know, he would potentially die and then did because the from it's interesting about the the autopsy not turning up or maybe not turning up like amounts of drugs and alcohol in his system because the account at least from the time was that he was fucked up yeah and like so that he was so he was on so many downers and like a dozen drinks for the day that he was just yeah, like very, yeah, very fucked up. That that autopsy was looked at. So yeah, the, the the information I got it was looked at by a man in the like mid nineties, and he was like, according to all this, right? Yeah, he probably he wasn't that think, high. He wasn't it. that drunk. Yeah, yeah. So. Interesting. So yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. So um, stones killed Brian Jones. <sighs> I think that's what we got to go with here. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Jones killers all of them. Yeah. Um, except Bill, they just let they forgot Bill was in the band when they yeah. organized that shit. Oh, like, oh, fuck. Yeah, and so that's why he was like wrote yeah. so candidly in his memoir yeah, about right, it. Right. Yeah, I think it is the uh, the the um, I think Keylock did orchestrate it from outside the pool, but it was the Stones who were just pushing him down. The Stones right, and their yes. girls. Mm-hmm. Um. There was an interesting quote I found from the Rolling Stone magazine, not banned, obituary okay, okay. Uh, that was published in August 69. Quote, I woke up to hear that Brian Jones was dead and not more than a ripple of sorrow passed through the room. It was time for it. There was just nothing left for him to do. Become a Rolling Stone and die. Wow. Yeah, the obit is fucking mean. It's crazy. That is, that's insane. Oh, I yeah. should mention he was 27 when he died. So he was, yes. um, oh, he was yeah. a member the of the first, 27 Club. The first member, I think. First I member. feel like we would know. Were any, like, 50s artists? When so th- there's, like, two thoughts about the 27 Club. Okay. It's, like, gotcha. there's, like, younger blues musicians. I think, like, Lightning Hopkins, maybe. Oh, okay. Or, like, people like that. Um, like, but, how old uh, was, like, he... Buddy Holly and the, was it the Big Bopper who was on that plane? Big was Bopper was old as fuck. Uh, yeah. No, they're not, they're not part of it. Okay, okay. Got it. So, um... The, the 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 famous ones are Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and they all died between sixty nine and seventy one. Yeah. Um, and then Kurt Cobain later on, and then Amy Winehouse later on. Those right. are like the members that people talk about. But Robert Johnson uh, was twenty seven, mm. and so he died in nineteen thirty eight. Um, so like sometimes he's thrown on there, but like I think. I think that the ones who died between 69 and 71 are like the 27 club. Yeah. Kind of. Otis Redding was 26, so close. He died on my mother's birthday. Damn. The, the, like the exact day she was born. Really? That's nuts. Year and everything, yeah. Um, also, the Rolling Stone obit says that he's only 26. Ooh. For some reason, <laughs> so they, got that, they got that fact wrong. I'm glad that they didn't fucking Google it. <clears throat> oh, they couldn't have, I guess. Well, it's weird because it came out the next month after like probably yeah. the next issue of rolling stone 
but it's like that gives them several weeks where it's like you there have to have been other stories published about it in the meantime it's not like they could only it's not like they were writing it the day of and they could only go off whatever rolling stone press release they had handy for his age you know like yeah because obviously it's pre-internet but like there had to have been other obits they could double check yeah just or (laughs) you know i don't know yeah it's weird i uh yeah it's the rolling stone obit is like kind of wild how uh how much they just blase it is yeah yeah. um but it is pretty long not quite as long as denny's by the 80s rolling stone i think took this thing a little more but it is like a full-on long article the obit so yeah um you know drowning didn't matter until denny's death (laughs) um okay i have another quote from there from the obit which is interesting uh, quote, it was not dealt with at all. The Stones' new single, Honky Talk Women, one of their best, certainly the best thing going on any radio, had just been released, and hours after Jones' picture hit the front page of the paper, uh, a DJ was rapping, well, that's the new single by the Stones, gonna be their biggest hit in a long time. Looks like old Brian Jones really missed out on this one too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so just nobody gave a shit. Jesus, apparently. Holy I mean, it's kind of sad where, like, yeah, like, yeah. from when we were talking about, like, in the mid-60s, like, Aftermath era, when apparently public perception was that Brian was still, like, the artistic leader of the band. Right. To then, by the time he dies, when everyone's just shrugging, like, oh, well, the Stones will be better now, or whatever. Like, yeah. It's pretty pretty rough. That is wild. Yeah. Um, The Stones did keep going from cohen's book he attributes it more to them being in shock and not really knowing how to deal with it so they decided to just keep working um right like they were in the studio and stuff um rather than them being like callous and uncaring um Mm -hmm. they so famously they had this concert scheduled two days after his death it was part of a series of free concerts in hyde park in london which i believe is like their central park Um, yeah so um they recast it was they when brian was still alive and just fired it was supposed to be their kind of big debut as the new rolling stones with mick taylor yeah um because they hadn't been touring a lot recently in the last few months um but they re they recast the show as a memorial to brian jones um and about three hundred thousand people showed up to that yeah well that's nice of them pretty big crowd yeah uh, yeah. Mick apparently wore a dress, um, which was stated matter-of-factly enough. It seems like it was a common thing for the era for him. And yeah. read a poem in Brian's honor, after which the the band released 3,500 butterflies. Yeah, this is what I heard about. It's uh, most of them died almost immediately because it was apparently a really, really hot day. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, just died on the stage. <laughs> yeah, Wow. Um, I bet in their minds that was yeah. really cool. Um, one in other... 1969, where the fuck do you even get that many butterflies? Right, like I know. who well, do you butterflies call? is crazy because I feel like releasing like doves and stuff is a thing, and that seems yeah. somehow easier to get than yeah butterflies seems wild, especially but... that many. Yeah. Like right now on Amazon, I could go buy like ten thousand ladybugs, but like <laughs> of course you could. In 1969, yeah. who? who are you going to call to be like, yeah, yeah. I need 30,000 butterflies like yeah. right now. Hey man, Alan Klein can do anything. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> um, the funeral was a few days later. Mick, Keith, Anita, and Lug didn't show. 
uh, Charlie and Bill were the only like the closest oh, I guess people to attend. Yeah, that's yeah, cold. There, there was a line in the obit too where this is the quote i hope the stones don't respond that way i hope they don't show up at jones's funeral in black suits in a way jones's death shows us and maybe mick jagger himself that the stones weren't kidding when they sang sympathy for the devil oh wow yeah like basically his point seems to just be like the stones are all about death so lean into it guys wow (laughs) which is kind of nuts yeah that is like a surprising I don't know. This guy is so like cynical and callous for 1969 and yeah. working for Rolling Stone. I guess everybody in the late 60s at Rolling Stone was kind of an asshole. Oh, yeah. They were yeah. huge dickheads. Yeah. Um. So that's the end of Brian Jones's tenure with the Stones and on this earth. Yeah. <laughs> all all in one. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P.B.J. Um, yeah, he was a terrible person. Awful. He all was around. A, like yes, I. It seems like zero redeeming qualities as a human being, except that he was an excellent instrumentalist, and for a good like three ish years there, really pushed the stones in terms of having some yeah. interesting, unique instrumentation. So right, and so my whole thing like when i was reading all this stuff a lot of the stuff came from the book who killed christopher robin and so people like immortalize him weirdly as this like yes fun loving like christopher robin-esque character and as you said earlier he was obsessed with like christopher robin and like being that so much so that there were like photo shoots of him because he had similar hair to the statues of christopher robin and so they're like (laughs) pictures of him like standing next to it like yeah christopher robin (laughs) and so people like are have such a fucking boner for like Mm -hmm. making that connection like oh he bought a.a milne's house he's like well christopher robin (laughs) and like if you're overlooking you can't even though like okay so i think like the thing with brian jones that is popular for fans of him now is that like he was like more of a pure artist quote-unquote than the stones and that they like ruined him as a person and dragged him by going pop by getting too big by insisting their band be more this like you know machine for fame than being an artistic thing but like it there's no (laughs) yeah like basically they didn't like him i think we were talking about them not liking him on like our third episode like still in 1964 like yeah less than a year after they founded the band they were like oh this guy's a dick yeah um i i think like yeah that's been kind of the main line throughout this whole thing is they have fucking hated him so like he's always been a jerk he has from well before they met him been a terrible person he had three illegitimate children by the age of 18 and was into beating women ever i mean at least as we've heard since the rolling stones were together like, yeah, within inches to death, apparently. Yeah, a, a, a god-awful guy. And yeah. then, like, did either did enough drugs or just got fed up enough with the way they were treating him and their bad relationship that he just kind of stopped contributing to the band. So it's like they didn't 
ruin him. It just no. was not, it was not meant to be him being in the band that much longer. Like it just, it wouldn't have worked. Even if he hadn't died, mm-hmm. he would, he seems like the kind of person who even like by the mid seventies would not have been like, welcome back in that band. They just wouldn't have no it, put it, it back it together. S- seems like if he hadn't died that night, he would have like spiraled downward and made like one shitty album and then yeah. like wanted to be back in the stones and then just would have like right. fallen. Into you know, obscurity. honestly, he seems like he would have done the Sid Barrett thing where he just basically became a recluse and never yeah. showed up again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he would have like walked into a studio of theirs six years later and they all would have been like, who's this asshole? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not recognized him. Um, My favorite thing so. is every photo shoot with Brian Jones that the Stones did, they all look not happy. They, yeah. They're all like kind of pissed off looking. They're just like, fine, yeah. let's fucking get it over with. The second Mick Taylor joins the band. Oh, really? It's like yeah. happy faces. Yeah. I mean, it's very weird. Makes some sense. Like, yeah, like I said, it had been like five years coming, basically. Yeah. If you have that shitty of an attitude around you all the time, yeah. I guess it kind of brings yeah. you down. Um, So sort of bouncing off Brian's death after this, Marianne and Mick go to Australia to I think they were shooting the movie you mentioned last week uh, that Mick was in or maybe it was a mm-hmm. different one. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but they went there to shoot a movie. And Marianne was, like, prescribed some drug because she didn't, like, flying or something and took, like, 30 pills of it oh. all at once. And yeah. um, so the re- she was apparently, like, in a really bad place after Brian died and was really upset about it. And so overdosed on these pills and, like, ended up in the hospital in Australia. And after that, her and Mick broke up at the end of 69. So... Okay. We say goodbye to Marianne Faithful there. At least in Faithful terms of Faithful no longer. Yeah, that's right. Oh, one more thing. Uh, well, okay. actually, two more things before we get to the album. Take a quick break, I think, before we get to the to yeah. Let It Bleed. Um, so one thing is that at this Hyde Park concert, we get uh, the start of a piece of Stone's history. So the guy who organized the concert was named Sam Cutler, and he was apparently big in, I don't know, the music scene in the late 60s in terms of being an event organizer, concert organizer. Yeah. Uh, so he was going to introduce them, He and he was putting on all these uh, free concerts in Hyde Park. So he's going to introduce them. He heard the Stones rehearsing before the show and was really unimpressed. <laughs> uh, thought they sounded like shit. So when he went to introduce them, he sarcastically introduced them as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Wow. And then afterwards, Mick apparently like cornered him and was like, Hey man, that's a little too much. Like you're laying it on a little thick (laughs) calling us the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And he was like, yeah, I was joking. (laughs) (laughs) But then apparently it like other people. Yeah. Introducing them started doing it and then it just stuck. And before, um, like for quite a few years there, it was like their tagline is the greatest rock yeah. and roll band in the world. You you hear that a lot still when people talk about the yeah. Stones. Well, Cohen uh, attributes it to just being really good timing where it's right around when the Beatles break up. And so they're kind of the last like rock band left, quote unquote, or yeah. like, you know, um, older like British invasion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
like the last band left and they're like at this height of uh popular and like um critical Mm -hmm. um success success thank you and so it just was like a perfect moment for them to like kind of unironically actually take that as their moniker Hmm. (laughs) that is hilarious that some asshole said it sarcastically and they're like yes right like was just like these fucking guys (laughs) and then mix like hey i know you can think it but it's like it's a little gauche to say it and the guy's like yeah fuck off mick we're all thinking it but (laughs) (laughs) oh god that's so fucking funny yeah so one other thing just that i found interesting this this is the most i think we talked a little bit about my book kind of covers stuff in fits and starts and the book had like five chapters on this year so i have a lot to say uh so one other interesting thing is that around this time crazily mick or keith i mean learned what open tuning was which is nuts that he did not play in it this whole time yeah that is um, the stone sound. Open G on a Telecaster, you just right. sound like Keith Richards. So at least according to the Cohen book, he did not learn until he met this dude named Rye Cooter, who's going to show up on Let It Bleed playing a couple Hel- instruments. Hilarious name. Yes. <laughs> um, so he was taught open tuning then and figured out his signature open G. It's apparently open G with the bottom string taken off, I think. Hmm. Like the lowest D taken off so that it's a little more not tinny sound but just more um i don't know i don't know how you would describe it but it sounds like it's a similar idea like more mid-range yes a similar idea to Jimi hendrix taking moving all the strings down and then adding a banjo string is the thinnest ones that he had a more although he did that so that they were all more bendable right i think so basically so but keith just didn't like the sound of all of them and so yeah started doing that so using that tuning while Mick and Keith are on vacation in Brazil, this is actually back in December 68 after Beggar's Banquet came out. Uh, they start working on Honky Tonk Women. And that single comes out in the summer of 69 here as a lead up to Let It Bleed. Hmm. So let's hear a little bit of Honky Tonk Women, PJ. My question is how was he playing slide guitar? for this many years without using an open tune. Yeah. He must have just been playing it regularly, which is really nuts. Like, pretty impressive. This song is so great. Oh, it rips, dude. This song fucking rules. Yeah. It is like a pure injection of what classic rock is and should be, kind of. See, and it it's one of those songs where I'm sure I, I've heard it on the radio a lot, but it never gets old to me. Yeah. It's such a good song. Yeah. I actually would say I have not heard this one all that much, and I, I love it. I love the country twang to it. I love the cowbell. It's all great. Dude, and that guitar is so good. It is, yeah. I love the idea that he just learned open tuning and then he was like, cool, I'm going to make one of the best songs ever. I'm just going to fucking man, that's rip how, on that. Yeah, that's how great musicians do it, is they yeah. learn something like that and then immediately turn around. Apparently, Ry Cooter, in like some interview later, was like pissed that Keith like stole his tuning style to like make this like amazing single. 
and the author, I think correctly, is like, yeah, but Ry Cooter didn't write the song. Like, Keith wrote the song. Like, you taught him yeah. a thing that he used, but he didn't steal your sound. Yeah, that'd be like Ravi Shankar being pissed was... that the Beatles got really big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, God, this is an amazing song. Um, So this, we will hear the countrified version of this on Let It Bleed. Yeah. That was the original version of the song, was like a very country-sounding song, and then they yeah. turned it into a more upbeat electric rock song to release it as a single. So. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, And this is also, I believe, the first appearance of Mick Taylor? Yes. This is the first appearance of Mick Taylor, at least released by the band, and someone... Uh, Keith credits Mick for influencing like for convincing them to record this version of Honky Tonk Women. Yeah, that's cool. Him, so, yeah. That's so good. It really is. It's a fantastic song. Uh apparently their producer played that cowbell. That's very funny. Thanks, Jimmy. It's maybe the most famous use of cowbell in any song besides the SNL sketch. Probably. Well, PJ, you want to take a quick break and then come back and go track by track through Let It Bleed? I would love to. Fantastic. We'll see, see you on the other side of that wave. That's right. <laughs> You want to get into the stones? Mm-hmm. All right, you can just go for it. I've already done the music okay, cool. stuff. So, welcome back to the Rolling Stone Studs. We're gonna be talking about "Let It Bleed." Ooh, baby, I want to let it bleed. Yeah, no, no band aids for this album. No. Um. Um. So, "Let It Bleed" was recorded, uh, started in late '68. Uh, when they're working on Honky Tonk Women, and then I think right. You Can't Always Get What You Want, maybe, was started in late 68. Um, I forget. One other one off the album. And recorded through, like, I think November 69, almost before they released it. They were working on it. Okay. Um, So two things really influenced recording this album. I mean, a lot of things did, but two things we're going to touch on here. So first of all, Sometime in early-ish 1969, I believe, Keith started palling around with Graham Parsons. Cool. Uh, to the point where, like, Graham left, like, stopped his tour midway through um, to just hang out with Keith for a few weeks. Cool. Um, yeah. And they sat around and jammed together, and Graham taught him all about country music. Um, like the minutia of all the different kinds of American country music and all the different, you know, guitar licks and everything, all the ins and outs. 
where to buy a pedal steel guitar. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. So he is was a really big influence on the Stones, who had already had some kind of country twang on a few tunes so far, but yeah. really wanting to lean more into country and being intrigued by that sound. And then what also helped them kind of lean into the country aspect is that when they started recording in L.A., which a lot of Let It Bleed was recorded in Los Angeles, Mick and Keith stayed at Stephen Stills' house in Laurel Canyon, which was the, as most rock people, rock fans know, was the epicenter of music in L.A. in the 60s and was a very folky country rock scene. And... As we know, that includes the Beach Boys. That's right. So yeah. all of this will greatly influence. I mean, I guess they were like kind of leaning this way on Baker's Banquet, but Let It Bleed obviously has is more they fully. Yeah, yeah, has a more fully developed idea about what they want to sound like. Yeah. So I didn't know that about Graham Parsons. That's cool. Yeah, that is interesting, and uh, that came up in my book. And the author, <laughs> the author says. He's like, mostly the Stones are really open about their influences. And he's like, the reason that I think Graham Parsons was such a huge influence on them is that he was like the only one of the few people Keith like flatly denies ever being influenced by. Really? And he's like, why would he act like that if he wasn't like nervous about stealing too much? Maybe. Yeah. Was his right. thought. Huh. Um, so, yeah, which was very interesting for sure. So, yeah, he apparently did some interview with Keith in, like, the 90s, and it got, like, really awkward when he started asking about Graham Parsons and Let It Bleed and stuff, because Keith was mm. just like, no, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I knew the guy. <laughs> yeah. We... <laughs> so. That's awesome. Or not really, but it's funny. It's interesting, for sure. Yeah. So, Let It Bleed came out in December, early December 1969. It went to number one in the UK, unseating Abbey Road for a minute, and number three in the US. And we're about to listen to Let It Bleed. Mm -hmm. And I know the late 60s, early 70s were like just a fucking cornucopia of music at this point, like yeah. and of different sounds and styles. And I feel like I artists know what you're going in say. every direction. But yeah. how fucking nuts is it that Abbey Road and Let It Bleed were out like at the exact same time? Just the because they are so exactly. I feel like they're just different worlds. That completely is completely different worlds. I don't often take notes uh, yeah. for this podcast. I took a note and I was like, "That is fucking bonkers," that they were yeah. like on the charts at the same time. Just I just feel like when you go like when you hear Abbey Road as this like pinnacle of the Beatles' artistic kind of achievements, it just your mental image of like the world that they're all in is so much different than like the mental image you get from the Rolling yeah. Stones being at like this pinnacle of their artistic achievement in the late sixties. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Like they just obviously were, yeah, moving in very differently kind of through, through the world at this point and being influenced by a lot of different stuff. Um, Brian shows up on two tracks here. Right. He so even though he was part of sessions for Country Honk and you can't always get what you want, I think, but yeah. none of nothing he contributed stayed on the album. The only stuff that stayed on the album was he played congas on Midnight Rambler and an auto harp, yes, right? On yeah. You Got the Silver. 
Um, oh, and then Mick uh, also only shows up twice, uh, playing slide guitar on Country Honk, and then guitar on oh, Live God. With Me. I thought you were talking about... Uh, oh, Mick Jagger, yeah. Mick Taylor. Yeah. And I was like, what? Okay, can we... we okay, can't, this is we something can't I want to talk about. both of them, yeah. No, we got to call him Taylor. Um, little... Okay, Big Mick, Little Mick. Yeah, there you go. How many people do you know in your life named Mick? Ooh, aside from Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor? Exactly. <laughs> I... Uh, oh, the Mick, that show. Oh, yeah. With what's-her-name from It's Always Sunny, right? Caitlin Olson. Yes, Caitlin Olson. Thank you. Uh, so, th- one, I know the Mick, Caitlin Olson. Okay. I have, I think maybe when I was a child, met one person named Mick ever. It yeah. is insane that they have two people named Mick, which is a fucking stupid name, in one well, band. yeah. I actually, just off the top of my head, is Mick a nickname for Michael? Because that would make it a lot less weird if it was just like a common... Um, it is Mick Taylor's first name is actually Michael. Yeah, is Mick Jagger's though? I think his name. I is feel like Mick. his name was just Mick. I think we looked that up or Michael. About that. No, yeah, yeah, Michael. So my guess is that it was just very British, either very 60s. British or just a thing of the time that it was cooler to call yourself Mick. I mean, you know, kind of like how in like the fifties or whatever there were a lot of dicks around, where it's just yeah. like that's yeah. a weird name now. However. Yeah. It is weird to me that with like Mick Jagger and his like his he's kind of big headed ego and yeah he did not make him go by you Michael he was like he there's two yeah. Mick's you're yeah. kind of right about that actually like I wonder if that came up in ever in conversation that it's like there can't be two Micks <laughs> yeah the two Micks I'd watch that show yeah okay it's so... it gets crazy when Mick Fleetwood joins the band later on <laughs> yeah that's right you want to get into the track by track. I would love to, Pete. Let's do it. All right. First song, Give Me Shelter. Uh, So this is their producer, Jimmy Miller, doing all the percussion stuff in the background in this intro. Okay. So the guiro... Yes. Or at least, yeah, he's credited with percussion on this track. Um, the intro to this song is really interesting. It's surprisingly long. I did not... 50 seconds. Yeah, think of it as being this long. Oh, such a good song. I'm going to break the silence of just listening to it. I love this song. It is one of my favorite songs. I really like this song, too. This is one of those... I mean, it's. I've I've heard it too many times, but it it still works. See, for me, still no affecting. matter how many times I hear it, it it's so good. Mm-hmm. It is great. Um, Mary Clayton is singing yeah. the backing vocals on here. 
uh, she'll kind of do more later. Killing it. Yeah. Yeah, the like duet with her and, and Mick is fantastic. It's very good. Their voices blend together very well. And then with this like, I don't know, this like big energy surrounding the like song, yeah. like her like her like screaming vocal is so yeah. good. It is. This song, I mean, I see why this song is like a cliche um, Vietnam adjacent song. Yeah. Because it is like, it's so foreboding and like big and dark feeling. Yeah. It's really interesting. It apparently was started being written by Keith when he was like watching this crazy thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And he kind of nailed it. If that's yeah. the kind of like intense energy he was going for. It's it's good yeah and it's also really interesting that it is like actually a few songs on this record it's so repetitive like it feels like it's just like the same two chords and like melody for five minutes but it but it works it works the whole time yeah i just want there's like a part where where her voice like like when her voice breaks yes that's so good it's great she's like putting her all into this song Mm mm-hmm and who is that? Like Mary Clayton? I've never. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, is she famous for other stuff? Because later there's a song, a singer who's more famous than her doing some backing vocals. Yes. Yeah. Let's look at her discography. She was but, on Gimme Shelter. Yeah, that's the main thing. <laughs> yep. Looks like. Yeah, this is probably the most famous thing she's. She done. was one of the Ray Charles backing vocalists. Okay. One of his many. He had a quite. A, he had a few different backing yeah. groups. I remember um, that from the film with Jamie Foxx. Yes. Uh, according to her Wikipedia page, uh, they called her randomly in the middle of the night, and she showed up in curlers to sing her part in a few takes and then left. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it took her a few takes to do this. That's yeah. impressive because it is one of the best. Oh, she I... sang backing vocals on "Sweet Home Alabama" too. Cool. Um, she also recorded a solo version of "Gimme Shelter," which is probably pretty interesting. Didn't I bet it is. Oh wow, she was pregnant at the time and then miscarried later. Ooh. Quote. This is a quote from Wikipedia. Some have attributed the miscarriage to the physical strain from her exertions during the recording. I think that's bullshit. Probably not the fact that they didn't know you weren't supposed to smoke while pregnant. Yeah. People are smoking and drinking left and right. I don't know. I don't want to say maybe she didn't smoke, but that seems a little interesting. Love in vain. Um, Guys, seriously, what the fuck? fuck is their problem putting slow songs at like right at the top second, of the album second it they it's the second are, song they've done this i think this is the fifth album in a row i think where they've put us very yeah. very slow song at the second or third spot i agree and like so what they're the masters of is opening an album perfectly mm-hmm. and then the second yes. song being like such a downer yeah it's so weird because I actually really like this song. I love. I this usually song. don't love a slow acoustic song, but this song's really beautiful. Yeah. But I just I hate that it's the second one. I like I don't want to slow down this much this early in the record. Yeah. It's crazy. However, this song is amazing. Yeah. The guitar, the acoustic guitar on it is like, 
I think it must be Keith, but yeah. it's so good. The guitar is great. The lyrics are stupid as hell. It took me a long time to get over how dumb the lyrics are. Yeah. But then Mick's voice and like vocal delivery is really great on this. Yeah. I love his voice. I will say that for this whole album. Yeah. He's, he's, his vocals are great on this album. Um, okay. Shut up. We'll get there when we get there. I have one very specific thought in mind about his vocals sucking, but... Ugh, you're wrong. Okay. This, this is good. a really good example of, like, a blues song that's not that bluesy that just really works. Yeah. Like, it's a good mix of, like, a slow acoustic song with some bluesiness, but it's not just, like, a slow eight-bar blues, you know? Yeah. It's... I um, really love this song, though. Is this the one with the mandolin? Yeah. Yeah. So Rye Cooter, the guy who taught Keith open tuning, plays the mandolin here. I don't love the mandolin, but it's fine. I get it. It works on this song, but, you know. All right. Country Honk. Oh, God. I, I hate the intro on this song. Yeah. It's not great. And I'm really afraid of what you're going to say about this song. They apparently recorded all this, like, background noise outside in front of the studio. And so, <laughs> like, the car honking was, like, one of the producers or whatever. Like, yeah. And, yeah, this is the original. Honky Tonk one. The fiddle's pretty good. It's I usually really don't good. love fiddle, but it's good. Um, I love this song. Yeah, I kind of thought you might. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of thought you wouldn't. I, I don't hate this song. It just feels like a fucking crime that this is what we get on an album instead of Honky Tonk Whatnot. Like, I it do is, agree. It is insanely stupid that this they should thought be... this was better. This should be a deep cut, like on yes. like a Beatles anthology. Yes, you know, it's like it is infuriating that they thought this was a better choice for the album than their hit yeah. single. Confounding is maybe yeah. a better. Word. Which, uh, if we're gonna pick a version, obviously Honky Talk Women is better. Yeah. Um, I do love this though. I like. Yeah. I wish this was some deep cut thing, but it's right. just the third song on one of their most popular albums. It's which so stupid. It should be. It should be, yeah. Honky Tonk Women. Um, I do. I do. Yeah. But I can't stress how much I love this song. I know. Yeah. I hear you, and I don't even dislike it. And I know it's sort of unfair to like judge it on what I think should have been, but it like at the time. Honky Talk Women had come out like four months earlier. Like, just fucking put it on the album, guys. What the hell are you doing? Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. Okay, next song. The, okay, the fiddle is so... Uh, who's playing that? Is that right? Oh, yeah. This is some guy... I feel like there's an interesting story about the fiddle, maybe. It's some guy named Byron Berline. I think okay. the interesting story was just that they made him stand out in the street to record it. And he that was is like, weird. oh, that's weird. Yeah. It's good, though. Because for it's some really reason it good. sounded better. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. And then they chose a version. He said they did like five takes and they chose the one he messed up on. And he was like, what? But I messed up on that one. And they're like, yeah, it sounds better. So, weird. Yeah. Okay. 
Like they right. liked his flub. Hmm. All right. Live with me. This is a Keith baseline, by the way. This is my favorite song on the album. That is shocking. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is. I fucking love this song. It's so groovy. I love the, like, boogie rock thing that they're doing with the funky bass line, and it's so great. I do love this song. When it kicks in there, it's so, yeah, oof, with the piano and everything. It is so fantastic, man. You know, Peter, there's some moments where I wish this was a video podcast. Um, one of them being uh, just then when it kicked in, you you got so into it. I'm headbanging to live with me right now, man. It yeah. is so, oh, it is such it, a groove. It's an amazing song. And I love the lyrics because they're just nonsense. Like there's something about his neighbor shooting rats to feed his geese. and then right after that he's like so come live with me and you're like what the fuck are you even talking about it's It's like their bad lyric writing but it's perfection it's so yeah so fantastic the only thing I almost don't love about it is I don't really love the sax solo but the sax is good when it's like yeah it's just not great I love it See, I think I've talked about this a lot. I'm a sucker for saxophone on songs. Sometimes I like them. This song specifically, I wanted a guitar solo real bad. But, yeah, this song's great. Oh, this song, yeah, this slaps. Slaps hard. Yes, it does. I actually forgot about the sax solo. This is not my favorite song on the album anymore. Oh, dude, no. Without the sax solo, it would be. See, I really, really like it. When that kicked in every time, I was like, what? Yeah. All right. Let it bleed. Uh, This is the first time uh, Stewie has shown up in like four albums. He plays piano on this song. Huh. Good piano. Peter, oh, I know. So bad. I know that that's what you're gonna. I love it. <laughs> it's I so love it. Stupid. I love the way he like does his weird thing on this song. Well, he does it, but then he abandons it as soon as this verse is over, and then the rest of the song he just sings normally. It's such a weird decision. Oh, I see. I like it, and I love this song. I think I generally like this song. But... He's still kind of doing it here. I guess this is still the verse, but no, he's abandoned it right there. Yeah. Oh God, dude! I like every time, and I like this. Also, it's coming up. The worst lyric on the record. First, there's always a space in her parking lot. (laughs) 
It's like they're writing cliche rock book titles in the moment, See, man. But I it's think, so bad. I think you're right, though. I think they were the first people doing it about cliche. Like, if that's I think the cliche okay. came from this. Yeah. If that's true, then that's okay. But it's it's hard to not just be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, your parking lot's open for coke and sympathy. Like, it's, yeah. it's so See, bad. If somebody had written that lyric now, I'd be like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? Right. They wrote it's it in 1969, insane. though. It sounds like a lyric a 14-year-old would write when they, like, yeah. are wanting to write cool rock songs. Yeah. Oh, God. I um, I love this song, and, like, every time it came on, yeah. I'd, like... I mean, I like it in general. It's just, so, with Country Honk and then this one, like... Is it just that it's country music? Like, to me, this smacked of their 64 stuff where they were just, like, straight up doing vocally and guitar-wise, like, Chuck Berry impressions and stuff. It just felt like now they discovered country, and they're like, cool, let's sound like Hank Williams or whatever. See, but this, to me, does not sound like Hank Williams. Well, country honk is the Hank Williams thing. And, like, they went the whole nine yards to do, like, a 1930s kind of country song. And then on this one, like, the song in general isn't super country, but then Mick just doing an obvious, like, put-on voice for a verse before abandoning it is just... It's a bad decision. I'm fine with it because they've, like... To me, this is... They've done... They've... You can still hear the blues influences, and then now that they're really into country music, they're like... It's like a new thing. It, it, I mean, it is similar to what CCR was doing at the time, but not yeah. as, I guess, southern rock. Right. Or just more country. More country, yeah. yeah. And I really like it. I guess. I just can't. I cannot get over his dumb twang at the beginning of the song. Like, it's 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 really nuts that no one in the band or none of the producers were like, hey, why don't we just do, why don't we try a version where you sing the first verse normally? Like, just give it a shot. Because I think I would have no problem with this song. But yeah. it just it it just feels like when you're listening to an album that people say is like maybe their best record and then it's like they're actively trying things out and not even committing to them on tape, it's like it bothers me. I like me, it. I, I think it's a fun little thing. Also, I like even if that annoyed me, the piano and guitar, like yeah. in that last part, makes up for it fully. But I like that he's like Someone yeah. we can lean on. I love it. I think uh, it's great. Yeah. I, yeah, it's fine. And the lyrics also are hard to get over. Again, if they're tongue-in-cheek, then I guess I like it. But I don't know that they're tongue-in-cheek. Let's pretend they are, Pete. I don't know All if right. I trust the Stones at this point to be tongue-in-cheek about singing about, you know, Their whole logo is being a tongue-in-a-cheek. <laughs> Not yet, man. Fair point. All right. All right. Midnight Rambler. Um, This song, again, kind of like a boogie rock funk, funky blues song is good shit. Yeah, it's tops. You like the harmonica on it even? I do. I do like the harmonica on it. It's more blues harmonica than they've ever done before on this country album they made. Well, which is kind of annoying, but I love it. Yeah, the harmonica's great when it's only on one song. Then I'll listen yeah. to all the harmonica in the world if you just keep it to like one or two songs. Yeah. Yeah, this song is really good. 
it is very good. I don't really feel like I have a lot to say except that I just like it. No, this one came on and I was like, yeah. I yeah. never, it does get a little funky later on, which I guess will bear yeah. some discussion. My only thought was it's a little bit long, but I don't mind that. Yeah. It's like seven minutes. Yeah, because they do, like, they kind of break it down and then yeah. kind of end with a different song at the end, Yeah. which I learned to like. I don't love it the first few times, but I got into it after a while. I will say this is a nine song album and it is yeah. uh, 43 minutes. Yeah. Which yeah, is they insane. do, because isn't this one and you can't always get what you want pretty long? Yeah, this one is seven minutes, you can't always get what you want is uh, seven and a half. Yeah. And then all the other songs for the time, pretty well, normal. not all the other songs. Yeah. They just have three songs over four minutes, which is fairly yeah. long for nine I guess Let It Bleed is also uh, five and a half minutes. So. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you want me to so skip like, forward to the. Yeah, why don't we go? How long is this song? Seven like, minutes. Maybe at like the four and a half minute mark is when it gets weird. I don't know. It's not one of those there it is. When this first, when I first heard this song, I was like, oh shit, they're doing another going home. <laughs> I was so ready for this to suck, but it's it's better. I like it. I like the whispering. Yeah. Yeah, they've learned how to slow down a song, and then, and then it yeah. builds back up into kind of a different outro, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, like, I love, I assume Keith's slide on this part. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's good. It is good. God. And Charlie, yeah. killing it. Yeah. Yeah, and then I do like that, like, they don't build it back up to, you know, the original song. Like, they kind of have this outro. No, they go it's, out on their own good. thing. It's cool. Yeah. It's yeah. well It's well done. They have learned their lesson from two different jamming songs to yeah. how to break down a song. <laughs> and not get too jammy, but just mm-hmm. jamming enough. God, the harmonica on this is so good. Yeah. Who's good playing that? Is that Mick? Uh, good question. Let me look. I don't actually... If it is Mick, he's gotten a lot better harmonica, friend. Yeah, it is. Fuck yeah, dude. That's cool. That's cool as hell. Um, oh, God, oh, I, I guess they do kind of get back to it. They do, end. yeah, but it's not like... I don't know. Yeah. It works. It is. You got the it's silver good. is the next song. Uh, so the first song with Keith singing lead for the whole song. Yeah. He sang lead for like half and half of songs before. Or just the verses on one of them, right? Yes, right, yeah. And then I think he did like the first two lines of a different one. Yeah, so. Um, this is fun. I really liked this song. I wish Mick was singing, though. That was my only note. I think it was like a Keith written. I believe it's supposed to be about Anita, so I don't know. Yeah. But they let him take it. But can you admit, he's kind of doing a Bob Dylan thing, which kind of annoyed me, but... I mean, from what we've heard of his voice so far, I honestly don't know if he has enough range to do 
anything else. Like, I don't know if he's trying to do that as much as that's just kind of what he sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that it, did not it, occur to me, I guess. He sounds a lot like Bob Dylan. He sounds fun. I don't know. I think this song's kind of a shrug. It's like, it's not bad, but I wouldn't skip it, but it also does not stand out to me in any way. See, I th- I wish I wish Mick had sung it, and I think it'd be a better song, but I do like it as a song. Yeah. I'd be like, interested, I guess, well, if Mick's I, I love I love this... Like, it it builds up to, like, this, like, very flowy... Yeah. That part rules. Yeah. Tell me, honey, what will I do when I'm All right, I'll go to Monkey Man. Man, people in the 60s were just obsessed with monkeys, PJ. Yeah. You got me and my monkey... You got Monkey Man. You got Hey Hey We're the Monkeys. Where's the end of the monkey shit, man? Come on. In 1988, with Tweeter and the Monkey Man by the Traveling Wilburys. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The natural endpoint for monkeys. Exactly. Um, I kind of don't love this song except for one part, which is maybe my favorite part on the album. So, it's a weird this song, one. I felt... I felt really cool driving around to this song. Mm-hmm. It's one of those songs. The guitar riff, there's actually like one. So the riff, there's like one specific instance where Keith plays like a variation on the riff that I really love and I wish he would do more often. But I don't know what part it's at, so I just find it. Can we just say, find it Keith is... Self. Keith is a riff machine. He's just like left and right. Any guitar he touches, yeah. it's a like genius riff. It was that part, by the way, where he goes like, but I think oh, it's like the only time he does it on this song. You mean the part I talked over? Yeah. Here, let's go. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, that like one variation is really great, but then I don't think he goes back to it ever, which is disappointing. That is good. I think it's different every time, though. Ish, like, different ish. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate this song. It, it like, it, was that the part you were talking about that you really love? No. So okay. starting at two and a half minutes, okay, in is so beautiful. I like, I don't even, I don't like the rest of this song. It's nuts. Oh shit, that resolve. With, yeah, like that sly guitar hanging around up there. I imagine it's all Mick Taylor doing like the background slide stuff. On no. this one. It's key. Yeah, because he wasn't on many of them, right? Yeah. Oh, it's good, though. And then it just goes back into, like, that part, that, like, 45-second part is, I think, the best part on the album. It's so fucking beautiful. It's really good. To go back into, like, this hard blues song right after is a really nice transition. It kind of thematically sounds like Gimme Shelter a little bit. Mm. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good yeah. point. Um, I, see, this song is so dumb, but I also like really enjoy listening to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. The, especially this part. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a monkey! Yeah. He sounds so dumb. I love it. Okay. The classic. You can't always get what you want. Um, and who was the boys' choir singing on this? I have that up. It is the London Bach Choir. Uh, uh, me and my brother one time got in a big argument because we were listening to the song. I was maybe 12 at the time, and I was like, yeah. they're German. And he was like, no, they're not. And I was like, yes, they're saying I, you can't always get what you want. They're... <laughs> they are, though. <laughs> maybe that's just the, like, choral pronunciation. That's a thing in choirs yeah. that, like, you're yeah. supposed to say certain vowels or or certain syllables a certain way, you know? Yeah, it probably is what it is, but I remember getting in a big argument with him. Yeah. Uh, I assume you hate this song. No. This is one of the unfortunate ones that is overplayed enough where I don't, I can't hear it, but the overplayed cliche song that it is now. I tried, man. Like, I got there with Gimme Shelter. Yeah. I'll talk about it more after the album, but I do like this song. It's okay. objectively a classic. You know what I don't love on the song What's is that? the choral intro. Yeah, interesting. I People love of, it. I would say that's maybe one of my more favorite parts, just because it's so weird, and I think it's an obvious but interesting contrast between like the boys' choir and then Mick coming in yeah. with his jagged like. It's a, it's a pleasing contrast to the ear, I would say. I, I do think it okay. I do think it sounds good, but there's a live version that I was telling you about mm. earlier. Yeah. It's from Rock and Roll Cervicus. Um, oh, okay, nice. And it's, it's it's amazing. They're just playing it live, and like Mick is like wearing a tiny, like, like long sleeve blue T-shirt, and he's just nice. like really getting into it. Um, um, that little drum intro, by the way. Apparently, Charlie just couldn't get down, and Jimmy Miller, the producer, kept being like, nope, it's this, man, try this, try this. And Charlie eventually, apparently not angrily, but was just like, why don't you do it? Yeah. And Jimmy Miller was a drummer from, like, before he was a producer, so he sat down and just played the drum track for this song. So, that's him on drums. It's a really good drum part. And then now we hear Doris Troy coming in with backing vocals. She was a big R&B singer in the early 60s, and then she also sang on Dark Side of the Moon. She's the, like, soloist yeah. on... I forget which track off the top of my head. Um, um, yeah. I love this song. Um, yeah. And I know it is overplayed. I think I am better at overlooking that than you are. Like an overplayed song. Um, yeah. Maybe more so with the Rolling Stones than I was with the Beach Boys. I think I'm more forgiving. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's like, 
I think it holds up to its like reputation of being this like iconic, amazing classic rock song because it is. Yeah. It's it's a really good song. Yeah. Um. They they also never. I don't think I've ever heard the full version on the radio. Yeah. There's a radio there edit that's like is. four I'm minutes. I'm sure there is because this is what like six minutes long. You said seven and a half. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, um, I uh, I like the full version for sure, or I really like good. hearing that more than the radio edit. Um, I was gonna play you too my favorite version of "You Can't Always Get What You Want" real quick. Okay, go for it. You What is this from? Huh? What do you mean? It's the Rolling Stones, man. What the fuck is this, Peter? <laughs> it's this TV show that, like, I think hardly anyone watched, but it's yeah. Glee. It's really good. God. Um, my sister was very into glee and obviously sure. i was very into the beatles and she was like how does it make you feel that glee uh has more number one hits than the beatles yeah and i was like well i mean that's not one band they also didn't write any of their songs also why are you dying on this hill <laughs> <laughs> that glee yeah. is better than the beatles you will be that's proven wrong funny. yeah yeah God, that's, that's awesome. credit to my fiance one. for that joke by the way that was all yeah. her idea <laughs> <laughs> uh well, PJ, well, Pete, that's Let It Bleed. That is Let It Bleed. Do you, who wants to go first here, man? I got thoughts, you got thoughts, we all got thoughts. I think, I'll go first. Great. I think it's a great album. Yeah. Um, We know that you apparently didn't like it at first and tried to. We do know that. Which I appreciate. You said that earlier. I listened to this having, I think the last time I listened to this album all the way through was, it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, but truly an enjoyable experience all the way through. There was not a song where I was like, oh, fuck this one again. I didn't no. do that a single time. I thought every song was a fucking bop, dude. I loved every single song. Well, I didn't love every single song. I didn't hate any of the songs, though. Yeah. Um, there were just some where I was like, okay, um, like... You got the silver. I was like, when it got to that, I was like, okay, that's fine, I guess. Um, but every other one I loved. Um, and the only thing I can knock this album for is the order of it is garbage. It yeah. is truly a terribly ordered album. Um, I do As think every and, Rolling Stones album is. <laughs> seemingly. I do think they nailed it. With the first song, Give Me Shelter, and mm-hmm. they nailed it with ending with You Can't Always Get What You Want. Yes. Those they are the what perfect... To do there. Everything in between needs to be reordered. Um, and that's the only thing I can knock it for. Uh, truly, I, uh, 
And if I could give it, we don't we don't do half ratings on this. No, because we show. don't half ass this show. Obviously, exactly. And I I would say an eight point five, but I got to yeah. round up. I got to round up to a nine. You do I a nine. like this that album is... a lot. That's a that's a rating. Okay, I love it. No, that's great. That's exciting. It's exciting that we're to the point where either of us feels like the Rolling Stones are at like a nine out of ten. Shut up. I hate spot. You. No, no, no. I'm not kidding. I'm being sincere. That's like it is exciting to go through a band's career like this and like watch them get that much better. It's it's awesome. Um, and I feel like nine out of ten is. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. I... So you're also saying 9 out of 10. No, I'm not going to say 9 out of 10. I still don't know what I'm going to say, so I'm going to talk about my Your thoughts, thoughts. first. Uh, okay, so first of all, like in terms of their... For some reason, I don't know why, when their songs like all of the Rolling Stones, you know, 40 licks and stuff, that I've heard mm-hmm. a million and a half times are all of the Beach Boys best ofs. Like, for some reason, I don't know why, but like sometimes songs still work for me, sometimes they don't, and sometimes I like listen to them enough that I start to kind of hear them aside from just like, because when you hear a song again that you've heard so many times, you probably, I feel like you don't really listen to it all that closely actually. And then, you know, after maybe a few listens to the album, it's like, okay, I'm actually like hearing the specific instrumentation or whatever in Gimme Shelter instead of just being like, yes, I know this song in the back of my head. Would you like to hear what I do for that? So, yeah, what do you do? I listen to the song all week. And then the day of recording, I like go through and listen with my headphones on and do nothing else. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good thought. I've been doing somewhat similarly, not nothing else, but I'll listen to the album like the one last time just, but then take my notes during it, like have the track list in front of me and be right, writing right. down I any d- notes. But I just mean like, right. I'm not like, you know, at work or walking whatever, or driving. To it. I'm whatever. just like sitting down with the express purpose of listening to this album. Yeah. So like both the ones off sympathy for the devil and street fighting man and jumping jack flash that we talked about last week like with all three of those i never got there give me shelter i got there you can't always get what you want i didn't really i i don't know how to explain it but i guess i just want to make it clear to you and to everyone listening i try i'm not not trying to be like this is overplayed i don't care about it um so that helped on this album that at least give me shelter i loved i still like really can't believe country honk is on here instead of honky tonk women because with honky tonk women in its place that would be aside from the order that would be a perfect a side to this record which yeah i agree is something the rolling stones have not done so far in my opinion is released like even a full perfect side of of music so We'll get that there. would have helped this album's case a lot if Honky Tonk Women was on here. I really, really did not like this album the first half of the week and was like, what the fuck am I not getting about the Rolling Stones here after Beggar's Banquet and then this? And then at some point, it just clicked. Like, I just, I put it on like two days ago. I think I went for a walk 
and was not planning on listening to it and then put it on and just found myself like jamming out the whole time. So it's very good. Yes. I don't, I'm still waiting for the best Rolling Stones album to come out. This is not the best Rolling Stones album in my opinion. Like it definitely hasn't yet. I, I definitely would not say I agree with people. I mean, like, I don't know, I guess favorite album doesn't really make any sense, but like we're starting to get into territory where people are legitimately like this might be the best one. So a lot of people think that yeah. about this album. And I, I, I do not I, have that opinion. Yeah. I don't think we're there. I'm going to go ahead and say seven out of 10. I honestly do not. I know we're not really supposed to compare to other albums, but like, like just when I was listening to this album, I got, I was very into it, but it's like, I do not think it's actually that much better than like a between the buttons oh, in terms of see. music that I enjoy. So I think I yeah. got to go the very good, but not great rating, which is seven out of 10. If we did half ratings, would you go seven and a half? No. I mean, I seven. honestly, I feel like I could potentially go eight, but come on, Pete. There's too much. I don't. Okay. Here's actually what I would say is that if honky tonk women was on here, it would be an eight, but like, I mm. still think there's enough that I don't like that. I could not get to nine out of 10. Can we just the other honky tonk woman was on there <laughs> from just the lyrical stuff to their weird to mix Pete, country make, voice. How about this? I'll make you a Spotify got the playlist sucking. where it, it doesn't have country honk, but it's got honky tonk women. on yeah. it. Then that's an eight out of 10. I mean, that would help, but that's, that's not what we do here. PJ. I'm just asking that would be an eight out of 10. I just need this. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Because Honky Tonk okay. Women's amazing, and Country Honk it's such is a good song. the second weakest song on here. So, I I like Country Honk, but yeah, I see what um, you're saying. Yeah. I okay. also, for some reason, this album inspired in me this thought, which I feel like as we've been listening to the Stones, I mean, part of two things i've kind of been like have been simmering and have finally kind of like i've been able to put into words and the first is like me wondering about is them being cliche them being cliche then or are they originating this because that's been kind of a thing i feel like for the for a few records now yeah um and especially like i'm kind of anticipating us getting into more early 70s stones when they really become what is like a 50 year cliche of like what a rock and roll band is with like, you know, drinking whiskey straight say, out of the bottle and doing Coke yeah. in the, uh, in the back room of their, uh, I do uh, think they started the, the modern, like what people think of like Led Zeppelin, Motley Crue, yeah. like bands who like went really right. hard. I do think they started that. Yeah. Like throwing TVs out of windows. I think yeah, that yeah. was, people were like living up to the Rolling Stones. Cause Keith becomes, obviously like one of the most popular yeah. like drug like yeah. uh punchlines ever like cokehead punchlines yeah. so you know i don't know so man. yeah so that's something i've been like thinking about during the last couple albums a lot and then i think will only maybe be more of a thing uh in the in the next few albums and then also i feel like i'm the rolling stones are weird i can't even put my finger on it like aside from i guess parts of it might be like casual misogyny but this album really didn't have a lot of that and then 
maybe just also like some of that cliche like lyrical and lifestyle stuff where it's just like it just feels like they're living lives that aren't relatable but not i mean that's kind of true of anyone or any like rock band but i just have this feeling like listening to the rolling stones at least to let it bleed and maybe in the future but it feels like (laughs) i think you'll know where what i'm trying to say with this it feels like if you like get really into watching football and you're like it's fun to watch but i also feel guilty about watching it because like i know that objectively there's like bad things surrounding all of it you mean um, the, the the taking a knee at the national anthem is that what you're talking about <laughs> yes i mean that um like it just feels like it's somehow there's like this tinge of like grossness to it and like not feeling right but I can't really put See, that into words yet, and I'm hoping that maybe that either comes to the surface in the next few albums or that it doesn't really become true to me listening I, to them I, more. I see what you mean, but I would counter with the Beach Boys had the same stuff going on. Denny was awful to women. He then married true. his second cousin. True. All around, Mike Love is an asshole and like should not be supported through anything yeah. mike love wasn't the best dude in the world yeah carl he gets a pass yeah stand-up guy yeah al i don't know yeah. what kind of freaky shit that little gremlin's into i mean here's the thing like the beach boys we're doing a lot of beach boys compared to the rolling stones talk this episode which is good the beach boys had and honestly a lot of this could probably be edited out later if you want <laughs> we're going on yeah. a long time at the end here yeah but like the Beach Boys, it all felt more like human to me. Not uh, Denny, not Denny's problems, but in terms of their like output as a band and their like infighting as a band, it I don't know. It struck me differently because it didn't feel like anyone. I mean, because no one was going for like the Rolling Stones ideal of like Coke, whiskey, and women. Like the most evil one of them, Mike was going for money, but like, he seemed like he was going for money in a way where like, he just wanted to like fucking buy an expensive house and like live by himself and like not have to worry about shit rather than like living this rock star lifestyle kind of. So it felt like it was coming from a different place with them. Like they weren't after the same thing. Kind of. Yeah, I guess they weren't necessarily painting their drug use in a good light, um, like a like a light where it's like this is what rock and roll is about, you know? Right. Their drug use seemed to. Yeah, that's true. And like whether that's just surface. how it was kind of presented in hindsight, and like when we were reading stuff about it, but it did feel like it was a lot more centered around like it being a problem. They weren't that wasn't the ideal rather than like the rolling stones where it's like a glorified thing. Yeah. Right. And I get that, but so like, I guess just that approach to at least talking about them helps. Whereas then when you approach the rolling stones, like in my book, it's this author being like Keith's done every drug in the world and is drunk, you know, 9,000 bottles of Jack and he's still kicking. So he must be the ideal man kind of thing. And you're like, Oh yeah, I don't know if that's really what we want to, Right. I mean, it gets into that whole toxic 
toxic masculinity thing, which I think. I guess that's yeah, that's kind of. We're both soy boys, so we don't know what's uh, (laughs) what's going on with that. Yeah, but like it's just it feels it feels harder to like out and out love the Rolling Stones without addressing some of that stuff. Whereas like if you're out and out loving the Beach Boys, you more just have to address that they're lame dads. That's kind of you know what I mean. I guess that's what I'm trying to say about like feeling a little gross listening to them or like okay. getting really into them but i get that yeah i think it's an interesting contrast and i'm excited to explore it more pj yes sir i'm excited to get my fingers sticky oh <laughs> that sounds familiar pj i'm glad you at least give it a seven out of ten there was a moment where i was worried man i was i was worried i was gonna have to face you with another like five out of ten yeah, I would have, uh, <laughs> I would have been upset to say the least. Um, it was exciting last week walking out of the show, being like, "Now PJ knows how I felt during the Beach Boys boys." Like now he gets it when he would defame, defame beautiful songs. Never once did I do that. <laughs> All right, Pete. All right, PJ. Well, Wait, is this I'll the see. outro or? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll I thought see. we were already done for something. Oh no, we're going again. This is round okay, two. Okay, this okay. is the beginning. Yeah. Nice. All right. I'll see you on the other side of that wave, Pete. See you there, PJ. A Beach Boys Boys production.